when I wrote the book, you know, I kind of did my own searches and, and talked to some connections that I had within the CIA and just to verify exactly what the how this technology works. They they wouldn't go as far as admitting putting voices in the heads. They had no problem admitting the directed energy capability. Mm-hmm. And um and started looking around and prior to my book there was, you know, a couple of books where people had mentioned it in passing, but you know, nobody with, you know, really any credentials. So when I wrote the book, I figured half the people that read this are going to think I'm just as crazy as the victims, you know, but if it reaches a few people and convinces them that this is otherwise, then I figure it's done its job and it seems to have done that. I've got a, a second book that's in editing right now called Guinea Pigs, uh, Technologies of Control, which kind of goes more into the history of how it became and, you know, kind of at least what I see is, you know, probably going to be the only way out of it. So, because everybody's looking for ways to shield themselves and things like that. And the bottom line is we're going to need socio-political change probably to um, to do anything about it. Yeah. You know, I can see where that would be the case. Well, I have a copy of your book here, and and, uh, and I've read it. And, um, you know, I found it fascinating, especially, um, well, I mean, I, I thought the background into the technology was really good. It was pretty thorough. And... Um, it, it really opened my eye, I, my eyes to the capabilities that are uh, available out there. But what just blew my mind was just your personal narrative in here and what you went through. I love to touch on some of this stuff, um, you know, during the interview as well. So feel free to reference that if you like. Okay. But I just, um, I, I, it was, um, it just boggled my mind how that was possible and, and the things that they did and the, just the, the, uh, monotony to it and how they it, it just happened over such a prolonged period of time um, well and that and that's what kind of you know i have a pretty good connection with sapd here so I, when i went to the you know to the, the sex crimes department the lieutenant in charge had been a patient of mine and was a friend of my father's who you know, was retired sapd and you know he told me straight out he said if i heard this story from anybody else i'd think they're crazy but you had me my life in your hands asleep on the table for surgery i do anesthesia right. uh, and he said but you know coming from you and your stories never changed and you know so they kind of they went through ice and and tried to see if any of this video if they were videoing any of the sexual assaults and putting them anywhere and uh, basically the in the end they basically it's, it's almost kind of like this group of this former fbi guy is allowed to do it right. sort of which is like what i kind of wondered all along is you know, if I went following people around and, you know, tampering with their cars and standing around their front doors, you know, I'd be arrested pretty quickly. And these guys were so brazen. This wasn't surveillance from afar or I kind of think that car's following me or I kind of think that person's following me. These were people literally standing in front of our windows right until you would come walking down the sidewalk and they would run and jump in a car or three cars following me moving jockeying around at, at two in the morning on a on a weekday you know and coming home from her house and shooting the finger at me when they would drive by or trying to block me in until i'd finally maneuver my way around and you know the only good thing about being in texas is what ended the stalking was when i came out to my house and said you know what you li- you live in a rural area if it's nighttime and they're on your property shoot them and this was not there was not anything that was questionable about what was going on. So, well, good for you for defending yourself. And I mean, obviously, it sounded like you had to based on what you experienced. I mean, that was just uh, horrendous. I couldn't believe 
the uh, the levels that they went to. But uh, and we, let's dive into some of that. But okay. first, uh, maybe we'll just start with some of these questions that I have laid out here. Paul and I put these together, so um, that's where they come from. So it's kind of an overview, but basically, um, why don't you just start by explaining what the problem is as you see it and uh, the ways in which classified technologies are being used on targeted persons, kind of a general. Well, well, from, from my experience, it, it seems to be a form of uh, remote neural monitoring is one of the terms we use for it. Um, the other term is psychotronic weaponry weaponry that has been designed to interact with the human nervous system um, in order to remotely pick up on someone's um, neural network or EEG and not only receive that and monitor it, but manipulate it and place it back into the victim to control their emotions or control their actions or bodily functions for that matter. And the other more recent term we have for that is EEG heterodyning or EEG cloning. The difference between EEG heterodyning and EEG cloning would be, um, let's say, me remotely uh, receiving your EEG and then duplicating it and putting that in another person to give them your same thoughts or feelings or physical reactions. EEG heterodyning would be receiving your EEG, manipulating it to um, put it back inside your head to give us a desired um, physical reaction or emotional reaction. And, uh, and exactly, I mean, give me an idea of how this technology works. I mean, I wish I could give you a good example of how it works. Uh, I know Robert Duncan worked on some of the projects. I mean, he claims it's a very complex, you know, mathematical situation that does it. The bottom line, though, at least from you know, from what I've been told is that it's mostly based on Robert Malik's patent uh, of remote, remote neural monitoring in which he found that if you shoot two dissimilar frequencies into the human brain, that the human brain will actually create an interference frequency as it tries to um, duplicate the two dissimilar frequencies and the interference frequency that gets um, transmitted back out of your brain can be decoded and your EEG um, digitally manipulated out of that. Now, and that patent came out in like 1974. It was M-A-L-E-C-H, Robert Malik. Um, and it was actually invented as a way to monitor pilots. That way, if, uh, if you had a pilot that was falling asleep or a pilot that was starting to hallucinate, um, they could see that remotely and then stimulate the pilot to wake him up or to bring him out of a delusion, especially fighter pilots that are on, you know, continuously long missions. Um, it appears to be mostly being done in that way. Now, one of the more scary things that's come out, come to light lately is the way the NSA is monitoring our computer systems. And they're doing that with <clears throat> continuous wave radar, or CWR. Um, in lately there's <clears throat> lately there's been a uh, program of interdiction where you know the computers and and smartphones and things are actually um, gotten before they actually reach our shores for sale and are uh, being implanted with uh, a particular type of implant one of them is called a cotton mouth at least for PCs and that's a small chip that actually goes into the cord between the computer and the monitor and when that chip is hit with continuous wave radar, 
it will begin to transmit up to eight kilometers away uh, whatever data is being sent from your computer to your screen. Um, it may be monitored in real time, or it may just be data that's collected um, you know, automatically without anybody actually watching it. But one of the thoughts that we have is that it might be continuous wave radar being used on humans as well. And if you see Jacob, Jacob Applebaum, some of his um, speeches and reports and, and exposure on this, he kind of alludes to um, some of Snowden's releases that the same technology that they're using on computers, they may be actually using on human systems as well. So Snowden leaked a lot of this this information about the gathering of tech, a gathering of information and sensitive uh, private information of individuals through you know cell phones and computers and even your search uh, engines and anything that you do on on social media networks, but. Um, what you're talking about is like EEG, um, you know, monitoring that is able to translate the brain patterns into, you know, verbal language like, you know, English, and then put it back in your brain. Is that is that right or? Yeah, essentially, yeah, and that is by definition what EEG heterodyning is. Um, like I said, it would be taking your basic EEG, receiving it, manipulating it, and spitting it back to you. And one thing that we found a long time ago within a lot of the neurologic studies is if you bombard the brain long enough with a certain frequency, the brain receives that frequency and adapts to that frequency and begins to operate in that frequency. Um, and specifically with Malik's patent, if you're using two dissimilar frequencies and you get one hemisphere of the brain operating at one frequency, the other hemisphere at a different frequency, they create an interference frequency. Uh, and we know the brain transmits. That's why we can we can actually look at an EEG. Now, traditionally in medicine, you know, we're using it with leads on the scalp, and that was the whole point of his patent: is that you no longer actually had to have leads on the scalp; that it could be done remotely with radio frequency. Wow. Now, that's not that's not in some the total of what these victims are experiencing. That's the monitoring and maybe some of the emotion manipulation. Um, also, you can control the brain into making the body twitch or making the body do just about anything. Uh, so everything's controlled by the brain, but there also seems to be a directed energy component um, to the victimization of these people because most of them are also complaining, you know, of eye burning, skin burning, and what would appear to be microwave energy-based weapons, body heating, um, most of those techniques used for sleep deprivation. Uh, almost all of the victims I've spoken to uh, complain that the attacks seem to be worse at night and seem to be geared at actually sleep depriving them. Tell me more about how that technology works, though. I mean, well, um, the directed in, yeah. di uh, well, directed energy weapons have been worked on for some time, and uh, if you look at the addendum, the Army's addendum to the uh, technology of non-lethal weaponry that came out uh, late 80s, um, they clearly talk about using direct microwave uh, energy as a weapon. You know, we're already seeing that in the active denial system, millimeter wave system, silent guardian, um, which is a, a joystick controlled millimeter wave weapon that is actually being used experimentally in uh, at least one Los Angeles prison. 
Um, that way, when prisoners get out of line, uh, a guard can actually manipulate the beam and, and burn the person until they get out of the way of the beam. Um, so that's been worked on, you know, for some time now, how it's being delivered possibly via satellite or being you know, delivered long range is classified technology that, you know, hopefully, uh, will eventually get somebody that's a whistleblower to, um, to tell us more about how that's done from what I've been told by some of my contacts that, that a lot of this is being done, especially the weaponry by satellite. There's been other, you know, world leaders, you know, that have complained about hearing voices and being attacked with directed energy. Um, of course, most of these victims that complain about it are immediately sent to a psychiatrist uh, who, who won't Google anything or won't look at any other research. Um, but the directed energy component is, has been around for, for quite a while. Um, how it's being used on such a grand scale um, is yet to be seen. But it's been demonstrated that it can be used in short range, like over, uh, you know, kind of a, um, a network or within proximity to someone using, um, I mean, whatever the techniques are or whatever the tools are, but it can be delivered like someone next door to you or outside in a car. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're they've already well, like you like I've said, you've seen the active denial system. Now it does, you know, that's basically mounted on a Humvee. Um, as far as what I've seen, a lot of victims complaining about possible handheld directed energy weapons that are being used on them by possibly by a neighbor or someone from a car. I I think most of what we're dealing with in the victim population is probably satellite based or or something much more remote than that. I know in my personal studies, I've actually taken victims uh, onto a ranch here in Texas where there's no power lines, there's no cell towers. Uh, you can you can do RF scans on the property and see that it's pretty clear. Um, and these victims still hear voices, they still get attacked. Uh, I've done the same thing by taking victims in a boat into the Gulf of Mexico um, to escape the possibility of it being handheld weapons or neighbors. They still hear voices, they still get attacked. and you know, some of my the victims I've talked to, they're uh, probably a little better explaining their situation. <clears throat> have even got on planes and flown to other countries. I had one victim who's pretty well off financially um, that actually flew to Cuba um, to try to get away from this and um, was still hearing voices and still being attacked even in Cuba. And, and just so you know, these are all people that, you know, were professionals, were educated, um, were functioning in society just fine. Uh, and most of them were between 30 and 40 when they first started getting victimized. Um, much older than you would typically see somebody all of a sudden come down with schizophrenia uh, and no reason to have all of a sudden developed an acute delusional disorder. Um, and I know in some of the questions I've been asked before is how do you uh, determine whether this is mental illness or this is somebody being victimized? And probably the biggest, two biggest discriminators that I've seen to determine that are most of the victims are educated. Most of them were functioning. Most of them are professionals. I've talked to a lot of doctors, a lot of lawyers, uh, whistleblowers from the National Geospatial Agency, a couple of whistleblowers I've worked with from the NSA. Um, these were functioning people. And, and they can tell you the day they started hearing voices and started experiencing attack. And typically it's in the 40s, late 30s, early 40s. 
um, with no history of mental illness and high functioning in society prior to that day. Um, the other big discriminator is with true mental illness, even bad schizophrenia, medication works. And I, I, being a physician, I certainly don't want to uh, come off as saying that everybody that hears voices is being victimized by technology. There's mental illness. Uh, schizophrenia exists. Schizophrenia usually responds to medication. And in some of these victims that have been uh, forced either by a licensure board uh, or by their occupations by the, you know, in a job setting to seek psychiatric help, many of them are placed on um, medications meant for schizophrenia or for delusional disorder. And so they're stuck on these medications and they're still being attacked and they're still hearing voices. The symptoms won't subside with uh, traditional uh, psychiatric treatment. It's fascinating. Yeah, I know. I know from uh, from my research that schizophrenia doesn't it typically um, set in around late teens, early twenties. Yeah, in a in a male, um, even younger than that. Sometimes in a female, it can be a little bit older, into the mid twenties. And the bottom line, and even most psychiatrists would agree with me that true schizophrenic people are kind of those people that you know were never right. Um, I mean, they were they were weird kids. They grew up into weird adults. Um, but it typically schizophrenia does respond to medication. You know, it's the problem is once they're better on their medication is they feel like they don't need their medication and they come off of it, then they go back into uh, acute schizophrenia. Um, but with these victims, a lot of them are being, you know, mandated into psychiatric treatment and they're taking medications that are, that are geared for delusional disorder or schizophrenia or paranoid schizophrenia. And they're still, still being, being attacked and they're still hearing voices. Uh, one good case in point was another physician here in Texas, was a cardiologist that came to me for help. Um, and he uh, unfortunately went to the Texas Medical Board uh, and told them, I think I'm being victimized because I'm a physician. Have you guys ever heard of this before? They immediately called him in, suspended his license, uh, put him through a month psychiatric stay um, with some legal help and several hearings, he got his license back, but is mandated to be on psychiatric medication. Uh, and talking to him after all this happened, he still has people parking in his driveway, shining bright lights through his house. He's still hearing voices and he's still being attacked with what he perceives to be directed energy, despite treatment. So uh, that's a pretty big discriminator. And this is a man who was in his 40s who had the, you know, the intelligence and the psychiatric stability to get through four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, and six years of cardiology residency, you know, to all of a sudden at 45 or 46 become schizophrenic, at least in my mind, is an impossibility. Well, I want to talk more about the victims and 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 what kind of people they are and why they might be uh, being targeted, but. Um, let's talk a little bit more about some of the techniques that they use. Let's talk about some of the gang stalking that you mentioned and that you um, you yourself experienced in your book. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. The the uh, kind of the old term or the term that was used online the most was gang stalking. Uh, I think in my book I even refer to it more as organized stalking, um, mainly because the term gang stalking. Um, people kind of envision, you know, kids in matching leather jackets or something out of the Warriors movie, um, which is not what this is. The, it's truly organized stalking. These are uh, where you'll notice people unknown to you. These aren't 
people hired by a loved one or anything traditionally or not an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend but all of a sudden you notice you know the same vehicles following you everywhere you go um people standing around your front door standing around work uh creating scenes in grocery stores around you where you know they may be talking to someone else you know within earshot of you but talking about something you did or something you said to a loved one and it's geared to let you know that there are are people that know your lifestyle and know the specifics of your lifestyle um i think the organized stalking is done for two reasons um for one it's a psychological warfare it puts the the person in a victim mindset uh, it also puts that victim down the pathway uh, to a mandated psychiatric stay because when they go around telling everybody that I'm being followed 24/7 um, by these people and and sometimes they'll tell neighbors or or tell loved ones that they're FBI when they're not uh so the victim starts telling everybody that they're under some type of federal investigation or federal surveillance when usually i think this is probably being done by private investigators however it's private investigators usually with former cia or former fbi experience and which is why they're being allowed to access the technology at least in in the case here in san antonio it was the pi group that we identified here uh it was a former fbi fraud investigator that opened up his own um private investigative agency after he retired he hired nothing but his family members and pretty much advertises corporate espionage and is the guy you turn to if you want to harass a, an ex-wife during a divorce proceeding to make her look crazy um possibly to get out of paying child support or get custody or kids or to get out of paying alimony um the other um other than getting you down that pathway to a psychiatrist and putting in you a victim mind state i think the other function um of the organized stalking is to gps you by vicinity most of these victims think they're chipped um because they seem to be able to be tracked everywhere they go and we have found a handful of chips in people um but by and large after looking at thousands of MRIs and not only me doing some RF scans looking for chips but uh ISA act uh which is an organization I'm affiliated with has actually uh gone around the country actually scanning a lot of victims doing radio frequency scanning and while we will find um radio transmissions either emanating into or from the victim when you image those sites we're not typically finding chips um which leads me to believe that most of this is probably being done without any type of an implant well the way you would do that in my mind would be to stalk that person and gps them by vicinity um until you can use whatever technology that is being used to remotely track them you know by their eeg and there's other ways to remotely track someone by body imaging by facial recognition um i've heard some of the people talk about now dna resonance uh which um using continuous wave radar if you bombard the human body with it we all have a different dna signature and that that can actually resonate and be received so um i the i think the organized stalking serves two purposes victim mindset um as well as gpsing by vicinity and a lot of this stuff actually happened to you personally i mean uh in your book you even mentioned some um some pretty um 
unbelievable things that were happening regarding surveillance techniques, the, the taking of doors off of their hinges and, and taking apart with uh, elaborate cameras, small, small hidden cameras being inserted into them. Yeah, sure. In the, in the book, I actually, the, that particular incident was, um, a girl that was doing some typing for me and holding on to some documents for me uh, after I found out that my home was being broken into fairly consistently. Um, I live in a rural area and with no homes around me, so my house was pretty fair game for breaking and entering. And actually um, had uh, sheriff reports of at least 16 times they came out with my alarm going off due to the inside motion detector being activated. Um, they weren't kicking in the door. They were remotely opening my garage door coming through a, um, an attic. So the alarm wasn't going off until they actually set off the motion detectors. Um, so when the police would get to my house, there was no bashed in door or broken window. So they would leave a note on the door saying that we, we looked at the perimeter and um, there appeared to be no breaking and entering. Uh, so, you know, get your alarm checked when the whole time they were coming, there were people inside my home. The girl that was actually storing much of my data and helping me do some of the typing of the book um, noticed that her doors were getting torn up. Her interior doors were being torn up. And then one day after slamming one of her doors, heard something knock inside the door. And these are the the hollow type doors that have a cardboard honeycomb system in between two veneer panels. Um, so we opened up one of the doors to find that there was a, a nine volt battery attached to essentially a low end nanny cam that had been mounted to the top of a plastic piece glued to the inside of the door with a small pinhole drilled into the door where it could actually shoot from the door into the bedroom and then another one shooting from a door into the living room where she did most of the typing. Those also would pick up audio. Now that's real low end technology and that would require a car nearby to do, or a, a neighbor nearby to do the reception. And in her case, um, just about every night around nine or 10 o'clock, a car would roll up in front of her uh, house and park on the curb with someone inside it that would sit there all night. And that's one of the other problems with organized stalking. As long as they don't come on your property, you can actually sit in a vehicle on the street, on the curb, however long you want. That's not illegal, and the police can't help you with that. Wow. So w let's talk about the targeted individuals. Why them? Why why you, for example? Well, in, in my case, in the book, the, the girl that I was engaged to had kind of um, attracted the fancy of a, a, an older ear, nose, and throat surgeon in San Antonio who had told me several years ago that he had this former FBI guy that he referred to as the ghost that did this barely legal harassment. In his exact words, he said, I'm hiding him from my wife in case I ever need to use him to make her look crazy during a divorce. Well, at the time he told me that, I kind of blew it off and, you know, thought, well, maybe this is just a guy that's just making himself look, you know, grandiose and probably a little bigger than life. Uh, until two years later, uh, when I was engaged to this girl who 
I knew he had found attractive and we, and we had been on vacation with this guy and his wife before this was a man and uh, his wife who were well known to me. Um, and then when I noticed her being stalked and like I said, I live in a rural area at the time on the, it, it wasn't even a driveway. It was a gravel road through a ranch, uh, to my home. And I would see her car leave the driveway at 2 AM. And then immediately two more cars turn their lights on and follow her five miles up a gravel road to the nearest highway. I started following those vehicles, writing down the plate numbers. They all came back to this PI agency that he had told me about several years prior that he used to harass competitors, uh, corporate espionage type of stuff. Um, so she was strictly targeted. You know, just basically by someone interested in sexually assaulting her, which was what wound up happening with her. Now, most of the other victims I've, I've talked to, there almost seems no reason for their victimization. I, I have had a handful of whistleblowers uh, from government agencies that have came to me that are being targeted for being whistleblowers. But by and large, most of the victims seem to be randomly selected and at least from a medical standpoint, being a physician and a researcher, this looks to me to be experimentation. It's it's being done in every major city. It's being done methodically, like it's being done with a, a manual, uh, instruction manual. Most of these victims will kind of report the same scenarios that they're hearing in their heads, uh, report the same scenarios with the organized stalking and the same scenarios with the directed energy attack. So in my mind, it, on a grand scale, it's probably experimentation or continuation of MKUltra. Uh, having had their hands slapped initially by the Rockefeller Commission and the church committee hearings, I think what they did was be a little more careful to farm this out to um, governmental or pr prior governmentally hired people who are now in private industry. Uh, so there's some plausible deniability when and if these people ever get caught. So, you know, they farmed out the technology to PI groups um, that are most of them probably owned by former FBI or former CIA people who are now operating as civilians, but being given access to government technology. Uh, it would appear to me that they're able to carte blanche select the victims however they want to, as long as the data goes back to the appropriate agencies at the top. So it seems like what the stuff that Snowden uh, leaked out was really just the tip of the iceberg compared to this really high tech surveillance that's going on that we know nothing about. Yeah, I think it was the tip of the iceberg and you know, he has a lot more documents to release. Uh, so I'm wondering if some of this is eventually going to come around. Uh, you know, Russell Tice had alluded to some of this uh, when he was a whistleblower from the NSA. He had uh, initially mentioned that it wasn't just uh, phone calls going overseas that they were listening to, that they were listening to, you know, pillow talk between, you know, married men and their girlfriends and basically kind of gave the scenario that they knew specific times that they could tune into specific phone calls uh, and basically listen to, you know, married guys and their girlfriends as, as entertainment. Uh, and it's come full circle to where even the NSA admitted that they've caught a number of their agents using this technology and what they, what they kind of kiddingly refer to as love int instead of human intelligence, human signals, intelligence, SIGINT, love int, 
where NSA agents are using this technology to spy on ex-wives or or run the plate numbers and spy on girls that they possibly met or seen at a grocery store. And if you look at the way the victims spread out demographically, and there's been studies on this, freedom from covert surveillance and harassment, you know, has ongoing um, um, studies, you know, checking the data demographically who's being victimized. 70% or so of the victims are female. And most of these people are not radicals. They're not politically inclined. Um, they're educated people that were functioning in normal jobs and having normal lives until one day they started hearing voices and being attacked and being stalked. Uh, and it seems to be intentionally a random sample. Well, I was just going to ask, I mean, how many of these people are dissidents or writers or whistleblowers themselves are involved in, um, you know, some know something about government policy or are involved in changing policy are, are any of them released no not many uh, that's that's a definitely uh, the rare now like i said i've had a, a, a handful of people that fit that description most of the people are are housewives um doctors lawyers i mean i trust me i certainly didn't want to be you know the spearhead of this movement you know i'm, I'm a medical doctor was engaged to a girl who was a mortgage broker you know, our plan was to be married and start a family and, and just live out the rest of our lives normally. Um, it was never, never planned in my life to have this book or my next book come out or deal with any of this and certainly not be um, the spearhead against any of it. Well, let's talk about who um, who's responsible. Who, who do you think is responsible for, for this? And you talked a little bit about the experimentation factor, but is there any other rhyme or reason to why they're doing this? Well, I mean, if if you look historically at the way MKUltra started, um, they've been looking for a long time how to remotely control human beings. Um, with MKUltra and the technology that existed at the time, you were kind of stuck with using you know, psychoactive drugs. Um, a lot of people were subjected to niner a thousand nine hundred a thousand times electroconvulsive therapy to try to wipe the slate of the brain clean and create manchurian candidates um you know those were multiple sub projects um the design of that that study was you know i hate to say beautiful but was so well done i mean they studied every facet of human behavior in mk ultra you know not all the sub projects were lsd and and brain chipping you you've heard of some of the worst ones that dealt with that but some of these other sub projects were watching kids on playgrounds to to study you know, childhood human interaction, you know, watching, you know, adult men that use prostitutes to determine sexual interaction. Um, they studied every facet of human behavior. And then also the ones that you heard about that were giving psychoactive, psychoactive drugs or you and Cameron up at um, McGill University uh, using a combination of uh, electroshock therapy and convulsive drugs or um, brain chipping. Um, so, it's been, it's actually started in the late fifties, you know, early sixties with MK ultra. Now, once, you know, they got their hand slapped and at, uh, the Rockefeller commission, you know, a lot of information came out in freedom of information. And there's been some really good books written on MK ultra based on what the government released in freedom of information. Well, most of these sub projects, you know, found success, you know, the research didn't stop. 
the freedom flow of freedom of information certainly stopped, but the research continued under different names, over different operation names, and certainly with um, them being a lot more careful as far as how anyone would actually pick up on the fact that it's experimentation. So at least in my mind, when you have you know, estimated 300,000 people voicing identical complaints of hearing voices, voice to skull, directed energy weapons attack, um, and what would appear to be a random sample, it's got to be experimentation. And the only place I can see that going is figuring out, you know, long-term study, because most of these victims have been victimized for 10 years or more. From a medical perspective with this technology, you would want to know how quickly you can degrade someone's psychiatric status, how, how quickly you can degrade someone's lifestyle to control them. And more than that, you would want to know, are there any weird cancers or any weird illnesses that are going to be caused by chronic bombardment with extremely low frequency waves, you know, or any other radio frequency waves or continuous radar? Um, that's going to be real important to know if this technology is being developed eventually to control the masses, you have to make sure that there's not going to be any weird cancers, thyroid cancers, leukemias, brain tumors, or anything that are going to arise from it. And that's the only reason I can see that some of these victims have been victimized for over a decade because their lives are destroyed usually with, within a year of being, uh, having this technology used on them. So why continuously, um, experiment on them would only be to find out medical data from chronic exposure. So what is their end game? What, who benefits and, um, you know, what's their purpose for, for doing this? Do you, you think? Well, I mean, I, I, I think the purpose, as I said, if you look back historically, they've been looking for a way to control the masses. And when the technology got to the point where directed energy could be used remotely um, with weaponry that actually can manipulate the human nervous system, I think the end game is mass population control. Um, in an in a interview probably about a year ago, Vladimir Putin actually admitted that um, the Russia has been working on psychotronic weapons for quite some time. Um, none of our media picked up on that. Uh, the only person that at least contacted me to make a comment against what he said was El Spectador, which is a, a newspaper, a news agency out of South America. But Putin said that whichever country controlled the best psychotronic weapons would control the globe without bullets or missiles. You control the decision making. You don't need bullets or missiles. So what can we do to protect ourselves? How can we... Are there, are there tools to monitor, for example, um, microwave frequencies that are being emitted in a certain area or on an individual? And, and how do we protect, how, how can one protect themselves against? Well, mo most of the victims that I've talked to are looking for shielding methods. Um, it would appear that most of this is being done with extremely low frequency waves, uh, which are not easily shielded. Um, you can shield those in a very well-made anechoic chamber. Um, with ISA Act, um, we actually took people to Belgium and had access to a uh, scientific uh, research anechoic chamber. And those people did find some relief in the chamber. And we did notice some attenuation of the signals that uh, were either coming off of them or going into them while in the chamber. And these people were victims that were studied next to controls. Um, that we monitored. 
and the controls who had never experienced any type of electronic harassment showed up negative. Um, the victims actually still showed up positive. It did seem to be attenuated in a very well-made research anechoic chamber. Unfortunately, that's beyond the, the, the uh, affordability of most of these victims. So shielding, I don't think, is going to be the way to go with that. Uh, what we need is education of the public. Um, once the in, most of the public understands that this type of weaponry exists, uh, it would be hard to degrade someone's life because they're, they're going to know not to run to people telling people that they're under a federal investigation or under federal surveillance, uh, hopefully avoid uh, any psychiatric diagnoses which secondarily victimize the victim. <clears throat> as far as an end game to this, um, education, public exposure, awareness, and political change. Um, unfortunately, we've come to a point in government where we have government that's grown too large. Uh, it's no longer, as people used to say, the government's supposed to fear the people. Uh, it's the other way around now. The people fear the government. We have a government that's out of control. Um, and it's going to take the people at least going to the, the polls and using their um, election um, choices to get people back in government with some ethics and some morals. Um, I think most of the Congress people know this exists. Uh, most of these victims immediately send letters to their respective congresswomen and congressmen. Uh, most of them return back with letters saying that they've never heard this or they don't think it's going on or even at worst getting letters returned to them recommending they see a psychiatrist. Dennis Kucinich mentioned this type of technology uh, in a legislation he wrote for non-weaponization of space before the actual um, bill made it to Congress. All of the um, the um, writing uh, and um, references to psychotronic weapons, which were in, it, in the initial bill, were taken out. Uh, even with that taken out, the bill didn't pass. Congress wouldn't pass the bill uh, to uh, to not weaponize space. Um, the other big thing in this country is we don't have legislation against experimentation by the government. We have a legislation called the Common Rule that's supposed to protect citizens from governmental experimentation. However, there's so many loopholes in the common rule that it's very easy for um, black budgeted intelligence agencies to have this type of experimentation with no known institutional review board uh, and nobody overseeing the research. Um, John Glenn, when he was a senator, tried to pass a bill making informed consent an absolute requirement for any federally funded research or experimentation and Congress shot it down. They wouldn't pass it. <clears throat> you may remember a couple of years back, they had the bioethics commissions hearing. I spoke at one of those hearings. Um, when the press released the fact that the Guatemalans had been experimented on similar to the Tuskegee experiment with gonorrhea and syphilis, weaponized forms of gonorrhea and syphilis, uh, it wasn't until that had media exposure that Obama appointed the Bioethics Commission. And their job was to find out if any non-consensual experimentation funded by the government was still ongoing in our country or abroad. There were four meetings. At each one of those meetings, there were well over 100 people in the public forum. Almost all of the people in the public forum, and were, forum were complaining of electronic harassment, directed energy attack, and hearing voices. 
Unfortunately, the people he appointed to the actual board to hear it were mostly apologists, bioethicists from Harvard and Yale. I was the only person that actually got up there and pointed out the loopholes in the common rule that allows for non-consensual experimentation. And some of the writing in that legislation is, is such that it essentially says that it's okay to perform the experimentation as long as the experimentees are notified after the fact. Uh, and typically that's what you've seen done with our government. We, we did it with radiation experiments. Uh, when we you know, flew radioactive clouds of iodine over major cities to see how quickly people would get thyroid cancer. As people came in reporting sickness, they were told they were crazy. Well, then when Clinton got to office, we had the Acre hearings uh, and he made all of these agencies put forward their data. And lo and behold, these people weren't crazy. They were getting leukemia, they were getting thyroid cancer and they were getting radiation sickness. And that came to light. Same thing with the Tuskegee experiment, the syphilis study. These men were infected intentionally with syphilis, denied treatment for a lifetime, passed on that infection to their wives, their girlfriends, and their children who passed on syphilis to their children. And it wasn't until there was some media exposure 40 years into the experiment um, that this was done. Well, then the surviving members and surviving family members got a lame apology from the government. That's typically what our government has always done. Do the experimentation. Once the media brings it to light, give the survivors an apology. And that's one of the things that we're hoping to avoid with electronic harassment and this experimentation is bring it to an end while the victims are actually still around to show up at a hearing. Well, I think that's uh, that covers pretty much everything that um, I wanted to discuss. We kind of went in a, in a little bit of a circle there, but I think we covered all the data. And is there anything else that you wanna you wanna say in, in wrapping up or? No, not that I can think of. I mean, it. There is so much stuff coming out. I mean, it, even the, the book that I have in editing right now that will hopefully be released here in another month or two, um, no sooner did I get it electronically sent off to my publisher when all of a sudden, you know, here's three more news stories that come out about some more graphic stuff from the NSA. Um, now, one thing I will say, while MKUltra was mostly a CIA program, I think probably a lot of this being done today is probably NSA-based. Um, the NSA does seem to be focusing more of their attention on, on some of these more exotic weapons. So, and how many terrorists has, have they actually uh, caught as a result of this? Oh, yeah. You're, you're the, with all the surveillance that's going on, they seem to be surveilling us mostly. You know, none of, none of this surveillance seems to be curtailing uh, terrorism. And, and I actually mentioned that in, in my next book, Guinea Pigs, you know, that uh, while they're passing most of this off as a national security issue, um, you know, we're not catching any terrorists. You know, the, the Middle East is on fire. It's a, almost all of those countries are back under radical hands. Um, they all hate us. And it's, you know, your, your chances of dying in a car crash going to work is one in 30. Your chances of dying from a terrorist bomb is damn near one in a million. So. Yeah. What are you really going to be worried about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's easy to scare the public, um, with terrorism, terrorism and terrorist bombs. Uh, but yeah, we're giving, great job of that. yeah, but we're, we're giving away our civil rights. 
Uh, we're giving away our privacy to protect ourselves from a boogeyman that I think is just uh, really non-existent. And now it seems to be the increase in gun violence is another direction to uh, take away more of our, our, our civil liberties and our, our freedoms. Well, and some of the gun violence that we're seeing, um, you know, if you look at the Aaron Alexis uh, thing, the Aaron Alexis went and, and shot up the Navy Yard, you know, he had emailed freedom from surveillance and harassment uh, several times asking for help and complaining about the and, and complaining about the sleep deprivation mostly. And, uh, you know, he worked in the IT sector. Um, he was familiar with this, this weaponry. He knew it was extremely low frequency wave weaponry, which is why he etched that on the side of the shotgun. Sleep deprivation, sleep deprivation, sleep deprivation mostly. And, uh, you know, he worked in the IT sector. Um, he was familiar with this this weaponry. He knew it was extremely low frequency wave weaponry, which is why he etched that on the side of the shotgun. Um, my personal belief with Aaron Alexis is I think they intended him to shoot up the airport in Norfolk uh, where he initially had an outbreak. He was walking by some people that he thought were um, making obscene gestures and obscene comments to him. And he went off on those people and he was detained and arrested there temporarily, uh, for acting out in the airport. Well, then it came, he came to the realization that those people weren't actually saying anything to him, that what he was hearing was hearing and he was hearing in his head that was being transmitted to him. Um, if you look at that scenario, it wasn't not, not long after that, we did have an airport shooting in LA uh, that again was someone that was hearing voices and had actually voiced complaints of suspected mind control. Um, when he went and shot up the Navy Yard, I don't think that was their intent. I think their intent was for him to go uh, get a little bit more violent in the airport due to the fact that he etched, this is my elf wave weapon on the side of his shotgun. Uh, I think the shooting at the Navy Yard is where he perceived the research was being done uh, on some of this weaponry and was actually a, a vengeance shooting, uh, not him being controlled uh, to be a controlled assassin at the Navy Yard. Well, it's, uh, it's fascinating. It's frightening. Um, a lot of good information there, John. I appreciate you, uh, sure. you exposing some of this stuff. and. Uh, for helping me out with uh, with answering some of these questions. I appreciate that. Well, and you know, Paul Baird's been at this a long time. His website's been up right. for years, you know, and this is, this is a global problem. I mean, it's, you know, we're making a lot of noise about it and trying to get exposure in the United States, but I get emails from just about every country in the world uh, with people complaining about this. And, and, and at least from a medical perspective, you know, for a psychiatrist or for a medical doctor that maybe sees one person in their practice that's complaining of this, it's real easy to see it as mental illness. But when you dive into it a little deeper, like I have, and you're really seeing the vast numbers of people globally that are having not similar, but identical complaints, then it's clear as day that there's something more to it. So, yeah, there definitely appears to be. So, um, that's great. I appreciate you uh, you helping us with this. All right. Thanks, Jeff.
United States, but I get emails from just about every country in the world uh, with people complaining about this. And, and, and at least from a medical perspective, you know, for a psychiatrist or for a medical doctor that maybe sees one person in their practice that's complaining of this, it's real easy to see it as mental illness. But when you dive into it a little deeper, like I have, and you're really seeing the vast numbers of people globally that are having not similar, but identical complaints, then it's clear as day that there's something more to it. So, yeah, there definitely appears to be. So, um, that's great. I appreciate you uh, you helping us with this. All right. Thanks, Jeff. for taking the time to join us this Sunday morning. We're broadcasting on our flagship station, KCAA 1050 AM, the station that leaves no listener behind. If you're located in the Southern California Inland Empire, you'll find us on KCAA 1050 on the AM dial. And if not, you can find us streaming on kcaaradio.com or talkstreamlive.com. And also you can find podcasts posted after the show on kcaaradio.com to listen at your leisure.
Also, don't forget you can learn more about our show at TrueSeekersRadioShow.com. Well, today we'll be touching on a subject that sounds so sinister, sort of like a story that you might hear on Coast to Coast with George. Nori, it sounds so unbelievable. What would you do if a friend or a family member came to you and said they were hearing voices in their head or in their home when no one else was around? And these voices knew exactly what they were doing or thinking, or they noticed that things in their home were being moved around or missing and appearing and disappearing. Well, today's guest experienced this and it's taken him on a journey he never expected in electronic harassment and surveillance. My guest is Dr. John Hall, and he's here to tell us his story and discuss a book he's written on the subject called A New Breed Satellite Terrorism in America. Dr. John Hall, MD, graduated from the University of Texas in San Antonio with a Bachelor of Science degree in biology. He attended medical school at the University of North Texas Health Science Center and completed his residency at the Western Reserve Care System in Youngstown, Ohio. He currently practices anesthesiology and pain management in Texas. And he's the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons active in the Mind Science Foundation. In his book, is compiled a combination of years of research and firsthand experience. And he's trying to educate the public about satellite surveillance and the best defense against loss of privacy and basic human rights. And Dr. Hall has treated numerous patients that have complained of various types of electronic harassment, which we will talk about today. So let's welcome Dr. John Hall. How are you today, Dr. Hall? Good, Angeline. Thanks for having me on. I know this is a, a creepy topic to, to bring up on this radio show. 
Well, listen, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to educate me and the listeners on this topic. First, Dr. Hall, uh, before we get started, could you give us a brief definition of just what is satellite terrorism or, or electronic harassment? Well, kind of a, a short course on it, just to, to be brief, would be someone that usually initially notices a group of individuals unknown to them stalking them. Um, not soon or soon after into the stalking, usually they'll notice ringing in the ears or tinnitus. Um, slowly the tinnitus will degrade down to actually hearing voice patterning within the tinnitus or in vibrations around them, such as a ceiling fan or a vent fan or running water. And then over time, slowly that voice patterning, um, which initially sounds like voices on an AM radio, but slightly out of tune, will go ahead and tune in. And then these victims will hear the voices of the perpetrators that are actually watching and describing what they're doing, where, they, where they're where they at in a room, what their plans are. Um, and believe it or not, that's followed by a, a type of directed energy attack where not only are they hearing their perpetrators, but they're being attacked with various forms of directed energy, which may cause you know, body twitching, uh, severe heart rates that uh, go up and down, um, burning of the skin, burning of the eyes, um, and along with break-ins into the home, um, moving things around, taking things apart, never stealing anything, because that'll usually draw a, a burglary charge, but just psychological warfare to let them know that you're com- completely inundated or what we call full-spectrum surveillance. So, Dr. Halt, how did you get involved in this topic of uh, satellite surveillance harassment and, and what eventually led to the writing of your book? Well, certainly not my choice, Angeline. I'm going to be honest with you there. I mean, I, I never really thought I would be the spearhead to have a movement against this, but I was um, dating a girl who um, became a victim of this technology and, you know, was completely psychologically normal, wasn't on drugs, um, had no reason to believe there was anything medically wrong with her. When she started noticing that um, she was hearing voices and noticed that she was being followed, and I noticed she was being followed by people. We lived quite a distance apart, and even on weeknights when there's no traffic, I would notice people following me to and from her home. Um, took the plate numbers down, had the plate numbers ran, turned out to be a private investigative group owned by a former FBI fraud agent um, who has access to some technology that um, he probably shouldn't have access to or has been allowed to have access to experimentally. And um, began hearing voices, and and, and even I had noticed that her place was getting broken into Once they were identified, then they began to target me uh, with break-ins, disabling my vehicles. Uh, At at one occasion, it got as bad as firing bullets through the bedroom of my home. So um, when we turned to the police, and the police could really offer no help. At that time, Texas stalking laws were such that you had to prove injury before you could get a restraining order. And actually, several law enforcement agencies said, well, you know, this guy's former FBI. He's a private investigator. He stalks people living. That's what he does. You can't do anything about it. Um, at its worst point, they began breaking into her house, uh, putting Rohypnol, uh, which is the, the date rape drug, into her bottled water and essentially um, using her in the form of sexual slavery. 
Um, and that's when um, she actually had her name changed uh, and was moved to another area to try the hands-on stalking and the sexual assaults. And when I saw that we could get no help from law enforcement, and, and I have a very good working relationship with SAPD. I mean, they had no problem leaving me when I came to them with this. The problem was being able to bring people to trial and prove this technology exists. And um, the police were forthright in telling me that it's it's not not what not what you know, but what you can prove in court. Mm-hmm. So uh, the next best thing was to write the book. In doing the research, I found there are, there are thousands of other people experiencing the same type of uh, victimization. So I thought, you know, I'll write this book as crazy as it sounds, and at least people will see that there is somebody with, you know, some letters behind their name and hopefully a little bit of credibility um, that's experiencing the same thing. And um, the whole point of the book was to not only expose it, but to, you know, make sure that people that are being victimized this way can read it and see that there is someone out there that believes them. And it's done wonders on, on that front. I mean, I've had a lot of people call or email and say, you know what, my son and my daughter, my wife or my husband have been going through this for years and we assume they were mentally ill. And now we understand that they were actually being victimized. So um, it's done. It's really done its job there. Well, Dr. Hall, we have a couple more minutes till the break before we get there. Could you, just tell us, did you, you said it was an investigative firm. Did you ever find out if someone hired them, who it might've been and what yeah. was the reasoning that they went after your girlfriend? Did you ever find that? Well, yeah, uh, yes, I did. That's, um, or at least I, as, as far as I know, I, I think I know there was another physician that I did anesthesia for in San Antonio who unbeknownst to me had um, become attracted to her, sexually attracted to her. Um, and apparently she wasn't interested and was quite a bit younger than him. And the private investigator happens to be a patient and a friend of this particular surgeon. Um, this guy actually kind of hires this type of surveillance out for, um, he's, he, let's put it this way. He's the go-to guy you go to. If you have a competitor that you want to draw a delusional or schizophrenic diagnosis on to get rid of them as a a competitor, whether that's in medicine or in business. Um, And he produced particularly to victimize her sexually. Um, I think what the technology is or get it ever figured out. Um, Once I did have their identities, uh, then more of the assault on me was physical. Um, break-ins, uh, stalking, uh, not so much electronic, although I did get some of the electronic harassment as well. Okay. Well, Dr. Hall, we'll go ahead and we'll take a break here. Listeners, our guest today is Dr. John Hall, MD, author of A New Breed Satellite Terrorism in America. We'll take a break. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Truth Seekers radio show.
sounds of someone taking their eyes off the road. Texting while driving is more than distracting. It's dangerous. Do yourself a favor. Do us all a favor. When you're on the road, stay off the phone. A message from CTIA, America's wireless companies, and the National Safety Council. Each year, millions of people visit their food group, or one that allows you to only eat from one group. Finally, there is no proof that eating specific foods at certain times of the day will help with weight loss. To create an eating plan just for you, see a registered dietitian and visit www.eatright.org. Encouraging you to eat right, I'm registered dietitian Melissa Joy Dobbins with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Welcome back. You're listening to the Truth Seekers Radio Show. Today, our guest is Dr. John Hall, author of A New Breed, Satellite Terrorism in America, and we're discussing electronic harassment and surveillance. Dr. Hall, before we uh, went on break, I asked you about other, you said you got involved with other victims. So your experience led to helping other victims. Now, in those cases, you said in your case, you thought it was a business associate, but in those cases, do you, what are some of the uh, examples of people who, who harasses them and why? What are their, what are um, their experiences with this? You know, that's the odd thing, Angelina. There's no, um, there's no set um, profile for a victim. Um, some of them are whistleblowers. I mean, there's a lot of people that uh, have had government positions that have come out against the government one way or another and have wound up victimized. But more than not, if you if you look at the demographics of the, the victims, um, there's no common denominator. I mean, most of them are professional people, um, you know, with higher education that were functioning normally, no psychological illnesses. Uh, help holding good jobs. Um, the only statistics that we have that have been actually gathered by Freedom from Covert Surveillance and Harassment, a human rights organization um, that deals with some of the victims, is that um, majority of the victims are female, um, between 35 and, and 65. Um, majority of them are complaining about sexual assault along with the electronic harassment. And most of them have a clue as to well, why they've been targeted. Most of them aren't political activists. Uh, I would imagine, at least in the dealings that I've had with, you know, probably five or six thousand victims now, uh, most of them don't have um, any political radicalism or activism in them at all. Um, it truly does seem to be um, random in such a way that it. For most of us in the medical field, there's several of us that are working against this that are medical doctors. It appears to be experimental. And there's groups in every major city that are allowed to have this technology and apparently victimize whomever for whatever reason they see fit carte blanche. Uh, and when you crunch all the numbers nationwide or globally, um, you end up with a pretty good random mix at the top for the appropriate agencies that are actually looking at the data to see how well this works as far as controlling an individual. So, Dr. Hall, do you think that the government is letting certain parties have access to this or are certain parties hijacking 
or is it both hijacking the technology? No, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, the majority of it, I think, is the government has allowed uh, certain groups, probably, I would imagine it's mostly going to be groups that are former FBI or former CIA people. Um, You know, there's a lot of government contractors now, you know, with top secret clearances. More, there's actually more contractors now with top secret clearances than there are people who actually are paid by the government with top secret clearances for the first time in history. So, I mean, there are people out there with access to this technology. And you know, like kind of like the NSA stuff that's coming out right now. You know, anytime you have an individual sitting behind a computer that has power to read your emails, read your text, read your, um, your te- listen to your phone call, or right. use that's meant to be mind-altering technology, there's going to be room for abuse. Uh, there's going to be the people that are you know, using it strictly, you know, adhering to the rules of, of its use, and there's going to be ones that are going to use it for their own device. And um, um, I know in one of my contacts within the CIA, as soon as this started happening, I you know, got a hold of him mm-hmm. and, and said, you know, I know plenty about this technology, but has it been commercialized where anybody can hire this done? And his exact words were, to me were, no, it's not. It's still a weapon of war for use abroad only. But it seems to be affecting about 300,000 people in the United States. So um, the only thing I can figure is based on um, history. You know, we looked at ways to control the human mind um, through the CIA and the NSA for, and the DOD, for that matter, for years since the 50s. Um, now that we have, you know, digital technology, Satellite technology, HARP, um, yeah. ways to remotely. It's you know taking the studies out of the lab and into society and in the home. We're now just you know existing in society or being in your home um, to yeah. make you again. Doctor Hall, in your book, it it appeared that this happened over a period of years. Is that correct? In your own experience? Yeah. This you know we kind of, I guess, first noticed it about 2002, 2003. And, you know, it's so subtle when it first starts that, you know, nobody wants to cry wolf to the police and go to the police and say, you know, I think I'm being stopped until you're really sure. I mean, because it's not uncommon, especially, you know, San Antonio is a big city, but the area where I live and the area where she lived were kind of small suburbs of San Antonio. So to see the same vehicles every day, you know, could possibly be, people who live around you, they're going to work or you're using the same shopping centers that you may use. Um, But this group, uh, when this happens, it's not surveillance from a distance. I mean, eventually they get very brazen. Um, So then you know you're actually being stalked. I mean, it's pulling up next to you and making finger gestures at you that are crude. Um, One car on your bumper, uh, one car slowing down in front of you to slow you down or trap you between two vehicles or um, outright sitting in your driveway or sitting on the street directly in front of your house and you know with some one or two people in it that are watching you come and go um especially in texas the way the privacy laws were at that time you had to prove injury to get a restraining order from someone and as far as private investigators that are licensed by the state as long as they're not breaking into your house allegedly or uh, are not on your property they can sit on the curb and watch your house from the street um, 24-7 if they want to. That's, that's perfectly fine and perfectly legal in Texas. Well, in your book, I mean, some of the things your girlfriend experienced were so tragic 
and you wouldn't have had to, I mean, if that had happened to me, I'd have, I'd have been out of there. How come she didn't up and move? I don't understand why she stayed as long as she did. Well, in the, when the sexual assault part started, she was being drugged pretty heavily with Rohypnol. As we found out, they were um, had not only bought condos on either side of her um, to watch her and um, control her from, but we're putting Rohypnol in her bottled water and um, several other items that we found. The problem with her is even though she kind of knew in the back of her head something was going on, because she's the one that came to me first, and said, "We're, you know, were you over here? I mean, we're going, weren't you in my house yesterday with, you know, like, you know, no, we live an hour apart. You know, I wasn't there. And she was like, well, I woke up and I felt like we had been sexually active and the doors were all open. And, and that's when she kind of started noticing it. And at, at one point thought she was having nightmares of being raped when in reality she was being drugged with her mm-hmm. and being raped. Mm-hmm. So once, once I could convince her that these weren't nightmares that, you know, um, and actually the convincing was being mostly done by her gynecologist when you know, she turned up with a cervical laceration and a bunch of um, vaginal tears. Mm-hmm. Um, then she you know, finally came to the conclusion that you know, I was right and that this wasn't just the effects from a single glass of wine before she went to bed or you know, a nightmare. So, but it did take a while for that convincing because this is such a weird thing, the way this technology works. And it's real easy to, to look for reasons for it to be some, something else, especially once you turn to the police once or twice and they won't help you. Mm-hmm. Um, or even worse yet, recommend you to a psychiatrist who's going to further victimize you. Then, um, you know, you have to start looking at ways to control it yourself. And luckily she had um, parents that eventually over time I was able to convince that, you know, she needed to be, you know, gotten out of here uh, and had a stepfather. Uh, who was pretty high up in the DOD who helped facilitate that too. And you say sometimes it's not just easy to up and move. I mean, you can move, but they can still get at you, correct? No, yeah. The only the move was strictly to get her away from the group here that was sexually assaulting her. You you can't move and get away from the electronic harassment part. Okay. And um the as far as electronic harassment i think you had a little story in the book about a guy who had a heart attack that they caused him to have a heart attack can you talk about that sure uh that actually um was a three of the girls that were working in my uh, medical practice at the time began hearing their spirit guides talk to them through their computers and you know, as a whole, I mean, I had a close, a close set of friends who kind of knew this was going on, who I was um, had confided in, but for the most part, tried to keep it out of the office. I was you know, in a group with other physicians at the time. So when these girls started complaining that their spirit guides were talking to them through their computers, and you know, and just so your listeners know, um, if you are being targeted by this technology, they can they can broadcast to your speakers, they can broadcast to the walls, they can broadcast to anything that vibrates. And um, a common ploy is to go for the, you know, that we're angels or we're spirit guides initially. Um, and that's what makes it hard to distinguish from schizophrenia. But, you know, these girls, again, no history of hearing things or anything before. Thought that it was kind of neat that all of a sudden they're hearing their spirit guides. And a lot of people who are, you know, fairly, you know, maybe not 
well-versed in the Bible but consider themselves Christians will, will usually fall for that. I've had a lot of victims call me and say, well, I thought I had been had become a prophet. And, you know, I was hearing, they said they were angels. So they believed it at first until their um, spirit guide started asking them to perform sex acts. Uh, and then I think they came to the realization pretty quick that this was harassment and not something spiritual. But one of the girls that worked in the office, um, her father lived uh, in a suburb outside of San Antonio. So not only was she hearing her spirit guide talk to her through the computer, but she came home one evening uh, and her father had uh, was watching TV and woke up the family at two in the morning saying the devil's in the room. You know, can't you guys hear him? I can hear him, which is the way this works. It is frequency specific to the individual they're messing with and no one else in the room will hear it. And, you know, of course, everybody said, no, we don't hear it. And he said, well, the devil's telling me this is last night on earth that I'm going to die tonight. And, you know, he's in the room. Why can't you people hear him? Um, of course, they continued to deny hearing him. And eventually he, he did die of a heart attack that night. So. Wow. Okay, doctor, we're going to take a break. Listeners, my guest today is Dr. John Hall, author of A New Breed satellite terrorism in america we're discussing electronic harassment you're listening to the truth seekers radio show Millions take comfort in God's word on a daily basis. But what about the ones who cannot hear these precious words of truth? Where would I find hope? Imagine God's word tongue of those top level system. I turned the Bible trend called Don't be stupid. You learn dance from you learn. Welcome back. You're listening to the Truth Seekers Radio Show. Today, our guest is Dr. John Hall, author of A New Breed, Satellite Terrorism in America, and we're discussing electronic harassment and surveillance. Dr. Hall, before we continue, would you like to give us your website address, your contact information, or tell the listeners how they can get your book? Uh, sure. Actually, my website is www.satweaponssatweapons.com. Uh, and the book's available actually by order at Barnes and Nobles, um, on Amazon or at the website. Okay. In your book, you talk about something called voice to skull technology. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. Voice to skull technology is, um, kind of a slang term, at least used among victims. Um, it's a form of synthetic telepathy, uh, which, um, Really, two ways to do it. One is direct synthetic telepathy, and these are the people who truly are hearing the voices in their head. That's been worked on for a long time, and for listeners who don't believe that exists, we've already used that in the field of war in um, De um, Operation Desert Storm. Um, there's several different versions of it. Um, it actually puts, you know, picks out a person specifically or a group of people specifically to put uh, communications into the head uh, that no one else can hear. And, um, you know, kind of some of the lower end forms of it that were in the use in the past is ultrasonic hearing or um, S-quad, which stands for silent sound spread spectrum. And that's the 
one that was actually used in Operation Desert Storm. If, you, know, you may remember there was, I think, 150 Marines had 1,500 Iraqi soldiers bow down on their knees and lay down their weapons. There's the one that, you know, you may remember there was, I think, 150 Marines had 1,500 Iraqi soldiers bow down on their knees and lay down their weapons after hearing Allah tell them to surrender in their head. And that's been well publicized that it was used in that theater. So uh, for any doubters that doubt that this technology has been worked on, um, you know, to that um, advanced stage, it's been around a while. And and that's one of the most disconcerting things to the victim is, you know, they're well aware of what's going on with them because their perpetrators are actually telling them when they attack them or when they follow them that, you know, well, you know, tomorrow when you go to work, we'll be behind you and there all day. And, you know, they're hearing this in their heads or they're hearing this uh, in their surroundings. So um, that's probably one of the most damning um, technologies being used on the victims because in our culture, not many people know about this type of technology. And as a rule, we've all been trained to think that, well, if somebody's hearing voices, they're obviously schizophrenic or delusional. Um, and as soon as they confide in a family member or a loved one, usually a psychiatrist is the first recommendation. They're not going to look up um, any of the information on this or delve into any of the studies done on it. They're going to fit you within the criteria of the DSM-4, which is to give you a mental diagnosis put you on some strong medications, which aren't going to help because you're still going to be victimized by it. Uh, and then at that point, um, the victim is then even further victimized by a psychiatrist unwittingly. I mean, I, I don't think the psychiatrists are part of the issue. At least most of them aren't, but mostly ignorant of the technology uh, and doing what they do, which is diagnose you. And, um, as much as we've tried to mainstream mental illness in this country with you know cute little commercials and things, um, once you're diagnosed as mentally ill, you usually are relatively shunned uh, from the workplace and from a lot of your family members. Mm -hmm. So that because that becomes a second victimization in most instances. Um, synthetic telepathy is actually uh, currently being worked on at the University of California at Irvine and has been worked on by Stanford Research uh, there in California before, which may be one of the reasons that we see the majority of the victims coming out of California now, possibly. Um, I would say I probably hear from three or four new victims a week on the website, and I would say probably 80 to 90% of those are coming out of California. Now, you know, your state's being hit very hard mm -hmm. with this technology experimentally. I don't know if you've ever ran across it before or any complaints of it, but um, uh, an interesting there's um, uh, in Palm Springs, there's an activist group there that's um, made up of mostly gay men that seems to be targeting, you know, at least their targeting seems to be part of a hate crime using the technology. And there's 60 men there, um, not only being attacked by directed energy, but they're all hearing the same voice, a female voice that goes by the name Lisa. Um, you know, if you have one or two people you know, in Palm Springs, they're hearing a voice. You, know, you can kind of write that off as possibly mental illness. But when it's 60 people and they're all hearing the same voice, that's experimentation until proven otherwise. Right. How do your peers feel about this? I mean, I mean, do they believe it or are they skeptical? Do they respect that you're you know, working to help others? How is that being accepted? Well, um, 
ironic you should ask that today because with everything that's come out about the NSA, and there's more coming out about the NSA, by the way, that was what we know now is I think two documents that um, this guy released that uh, came forward out of the NSA. I think he's going to be releasing a lot more stuff. But uh, I'm in a group of physicians, a group of 14 doctors, and I would say half of them believe that this technology exists completely. At least they believe in it enough that they're scared of it happening to them. Um, and there's probably the other half that that aren't real sure what to think. I mean, they've worked with me long enough. I've been in practice for 20 years, so they know I'm not crazy, but they're, they may are not too sure about the technology. And usually the question is, well, most of these people that are claiming to be victims are nobodies. You know, they're not the president. They're not the vice president. They're not the head of GE. You know, why are they? Why would they be the ones for the government to spend this kind of money? You know, to victimize. And the answer is really simple on that: is if you look back historically at all the mind control research that started since MK Ultra, they don't victimize the people that have the political or financial, you know, um, power to do something about it. They victimize the common people. Um, because they're easier to victimize, um, there's more of them, and they don't have the political ability to to go to the top and get anything changed. Um, you know, typically, you know, the the public has been used experimentally in this country by our government since we've had a government. And and actually, my second book coming out is called Guinea Pigs: Technologies of Control, and I go through an entire chapter of demonstrating to the reader that there are no safeguards against the government experimenting on the public here. None at all, actually. You know, you hear stories of people being chipped and they say they don't know how they got chipped. They're at the, they go to the doctor and the doctor finds this chip. How do you explain that? And also, do they need a chip to be controlled? Uh, no, you don't actually need a chip to do this. It's probably worthwhile to be scanned for one to make sure you're not chipped. Uh, the only way to chip somebody is um, if it's a standard um, tracking chip um, that we already know about. That goes into a pretty large harpoon of a syringe. Um, it's actually a 10-gauge a syringe that that chip goes in through. Um, usually those people that you know we have found chips in will give you a history of um, having missed time. You know, they were obviously drugged at a bar, um, drugged like my... Uh, my ex-fiance was in, in water or food in their home where someone can break in or get into their car with them or, or get them away from the bar uh, to put this harpoon in the back of their arm or the back of their shoulder uh, to put the chip in. Um, when I have victims that, that give no history of having lost any time, um, I usually know protecting a chip is, is pretty low. Um, but if you look at Robert Duncan is another, he's a PhD, another doctor that's actually written on this topic. And he actually worked on some of these projects for the government, uh, claims that you don't have to be chipped, that the human brain can be uploaded and downloaded like a computer. And that is how it's done. And that, um, people who are really convinced that they're chipped and that aren't, that that's a red herring that, or a belief system that's being instilled in them, so they drain their finances looking for something that's not there. Mm -hmm. What advice uh, would you give to someone if they suspect that maybe they're a victim of the electronic harassment or surveillance? I mean, what's the first step they can do, and then how would you help? How would you tell someone to to try to cope with this? Just 
you know, daily in their daily life. Well, my advice to people is that if you can, if you can notice the stalking early on, and that's for any of your listeners, whether they believe this story about this technology or not, if you notice somebody that's not a, 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 a ex loved one or an ex girlfriend or a, an ex husband or or wife following you, if you notice strangers following you, get the plate numbers, go to the police, get some identities, stop the, well, it's at the stalking phase because this comes in phases and it starts with stalking. Um, and the stalking, we're thinking that they're doing that so they can GPS you from a distance until they get a read on your EEG. The rest of this is done by identifying your brain waves. So your chance to stop it is during the stalking phase. Once the stalking stops and you're left with nothing but electronic harassment, then you're dealing with technology that can't be proven or disproven. Um, and nothing tangible you can point to to law enforcement that's going on with you because these are not lethal weapons that are being used. They're not meant to kill necessarily uh, and not, not meant to not leave any damage once they turn them off, kind of like the millimeter wave weapon and microwave weapons being used by DOD currently. But my advice is to identify the stalkers when you have the chance so you know who's doing it. Um, go online, you know, whether it's my website, there's several other uh, help groups. I'm a member of um, ISAC, which is out of Sacramento, which is the um, um, International Center um, Against Abuse of Covert Technologies. Uh, there's Cheryl Welsh's MindJustice.org. Educate yourself. If you have to talk to somebody, talk to people that already know about this. Don't try to convince family members uh, that won't believe you. Um, because, like I said, getting getting yourself in front of a psychiatrist the more problems once you're diagnosed with an illness. Uh, and stick to talking to people who already know about this and are working against it and, uh, and become an activist uh, with people that are already activists. But um, the, the worst thing that I see is a lot of the um, victims will, you know, try really convincing their family members or a psychiatrist that this you know, technology exists that are not quite quite have handle on the technology well enough to do so mm -hmm. and that ends up victimizing them further so okay all right dr hall we're going to take our last break listeners our guest today is dr john hall author of a new breed satellite terrorism in america and we're discussing electronic harassment and surveillance we'll be back right after these messages <laughs> Antioxidants. You've heard of them, but do you know what they're good for or where to get them? This is Sylvia Escott Stump of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Antioxidants. They destroy the free radicals that cause cellular damage. And eating foods that are rich in antioxidants may help prevent cancer and heart disease. These foods include red wine in addition to grape juice, whole grain pasta, eggs, seafood, and canned beans, brightly colored vegetables, carrots, squash, broccoli, all the peppers, sweet potatoes, tomatoes, and kale are other tasty sources. And for those of you with a sweet tooth, good news. Honey, brown sugar, and maple syrup, in addition to fruits like blueberries, cantaloupe, peaches, and strawberries, also contain significant levels of antioxidants. 
encouraging you to eat right. I'm registered dietitian Sylvia Escott Stump with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. For every translator on the field, we need at least two volunteers. There's a role for you in the Ministry of Bible Translation. If you're willing, you can help. On a computer, sewing machine, car, on a ladder, there's work you can do. Wycliffe Associates volunteers help build the translation training centers, provide systems for clean water, do office work, and share the unquenchable Word of God to those who desperately seek eternal life. I want to know about Him. Please help me find Him. Learn how you can become a Wycliffe Associates volunteer and take part in the goal of Vision 2025, helping start a Bible translation in every language that needs one by the year 2025. Call 800-THE-WORD. Would I do this again? In a heartbeat. If God is calling you to make a difference, call us at 1-800-THE-WORD. That's 800-843-9673. Or go to our website at WycliffeAssociates.org and find out how you can become a Wycliffe Associates volunteer. Welcome back. You're listening to the True Seekers Radio oh, you're Show. Dr. John Hall, author of A New Breed, Satellite Terrorism in America, and we're discussing electronic harassment. And Dr. Hall, before we do our last segment, would you one more time give your uh, your uh, website address and how the listeners can get your book? Sure. It's uh, www.satweapons.com, uh, and Barnes & Noble's Amazon or the book can be ordered directly from the publisher on the website. Uh, and I'd like to thank you, Angeline, for you know for take, doing this story too. I know this is some crazy sounding stuff, um, but public awareness right now with this type of technology, especially with the NSA finally coming forward with um, the tip of the iceberg of what they actually have the capability to do, uh, is really important. I think the door is slightly open to this. And you asked about um, you know some of the other physicians in my group earlier, and the ironic thing was that. Just Friday, um, the CEO of our, our our office actually came back and said, you know what? She looked at me and she said, four or five years ago, was kind of thinking maybe you were crazy some of this stuff. But now that the mainstream media is bringing out all this about the NSA, maybe you're a prophet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, and I guess it's like the Bible says, you're never a prophet in your own village. So. Right, right. Do you uh, think that there is a spiritual component to this? Actually, you know, it's, uh, it's funny you ask that too. Is it, when things were at their worst um, with my fiance and with myself, um, the educated physicians and people that I, I tried to confide in were the least likely to believe it. My Christian friends um, who stood by me and wholeheartedly believed it we're the best people to talk to because they have seen this as spiritual warfare for some time. As a, as a matter of fact, there's a uh, evangelist named Grant Jeffries who wrote a book um, called the, the shadow government. And he presents all the same technology, um, all the same victim, all victims, everything that I've talked about on this radio show, he talks about from a spiritual warfare perspective uh, and has some really good reference in that book too. And, um, so, yeah, I think there is a spiritual component to it. And in California, especially because unfortunately there, 
Uh, Satanism has taken a pretty strong political hold uh, and the occult. Mm-hmm. There, and we, we have noticed with some of the victims from California that there seems to be a, a strong satanic component to it there. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Hall, can you tell us a little bit about the International Center Against Abuse of Covert Technologies? Uh, yeah, that's uh, an organization that um, uh, after meeting Jesse Beltran, who was a victim uh, that came to see me uh, for a question and answer session in Austin, Texas. Um, um, I would let him tell his story or let people read about him on the site, but very educated individual, go-getter, um, became a victim unwittingly. Um, it worked for the city of Sacramento and, and saw some things that he uh, had to report on that he, I think he wish he hasn't had now. But um, very educated man, I took it upon himself to form ISA Act. Uh, and has done some great strides with that, uh, has been working with some of the victims that uh, we've been getting from Europe, uh, from Japan. I mean, uh, on my website, I've heard from heard victims of this technology from just about every country on the globe. Uh, every industrialized nation is using it. Um, Jesse has really made some great strides with uh, taking some of the scanning that I do uh, to the next stage, uh, working with a lot of victims, making sure they're scanned or rule out uh, RFID chips of any type. Um, and working in conjunction uh, with the UK and, and other countries in Europe uh, to fight the same fight over there. And it's a great organization. And Dr. Hall, what's the Mind Science Foundation that you're involved in? Mind Science Foundation has been around for a long time. It was uh, created by Tom Slick, who was the uh, founder of Southwest Research Institute here in San Antonio. Um, and we try to stay just on the cutting edge as, as much as we can with some of it classified, most of it not classified, uh, research that's being done um, as far as consciousness and mind science. Um, and that's been real important. I mean, we're talking about people that I can confide in and, and have on my side. Most of those people come from a, a myriad of research um, backgrounds. Uh, some medical doctor, some PhD, some physicist, um, and was a um, is a real uh, source of knowledge for me to turn to when I was doing some of my early research for the first book, uh, and certainly for the book that's that's going to be coming out hopefully here in the next six months or so. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear about these uh, the push to the new digital televisions because they have cameras in them or cell phones that even went not when not in use or being used to monitor or pick up our conversations. Do you think there's any truth in this? Well, based on what the NSA just released and was forced to admit that they have of being able to use your camera on your cell phone and use your microphone on your cell phone when it's off, uh, I think the truth's there now. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it was conspiracy theory up until last week. Um, but uh, the NSA has you know, pretty much had to admit to a lot of the things that uh, are, that they're able to do now, at least what's been leaked so far. Um, as usual, you know, Russell Tice was another NSA whistleblower. In 2009, he tried to you know, expose the same technology and was crucified in the press. Uh, luckily, Snowden, uh, the latest whistleblower, seems to be being treated a little more fairly by the press, although they, they've started a discreditation campaign on him as well. Mm-hmm. Well, before we close, is there anything else that you'd like to tell the listeners that I haven't asked you or that you haven't mentioned yet? 
sure um, the best fight against this is through public awareness. Um, I would ask that uh, any of the people listening to this that are interested in learning more about it, um, either go to the website, go to Freedom for Surveillance and Harassment. Um, one of the things we're doing for awareness right now, there's a, a movie being made on the book. We have a screenplay and an independent film being made. Uh, and there's a victim that's actually uh, fashioning uh, awareness bracelets, uh, kind of like I don't know if you remember the pink bracelets that people were wearing for breast cancer awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, a cell bracelet, and um, uh, his name is Ty Du. And for anybody that's interested in the awareness bracelets that we've got, um, his email address is ty at seahawareness.com. And that stands for Satellite Electronic Harassment Awareness.com. And you said you have another book coming out, correct? Uh, trying. I've been working on this for a couple of years. It's It's all technological. It's not a story like the first book was. Um, it's called Guinea Pigs, Technologies of Control, and uh, it's taken about two years longer than suspected because it was um, censored and some of it redacted uh, due to some of the nature of the information I used in the book. Um, the FBI has specifically um, tried to delay the release of this book, but I think we finally have it redacted and it's censored to where it's acceptable uh, to the government and the publisher to put out. So. Doctor, are you still experiencing any of this electronic harassment to this day? You know what? They've uh, miraculously left me alone uh, for the last few years. Um, As I stated, though, to you, I know who's doing it in our area, Mm -hmm. and I think it's more of a function of lack of manpower. And uh, I gave them such notoriety in San Antonio that they've been forced to kind of move out of San Antonio. And uh, at least from what emails I've gotten from victims, they're... Um, victimizing people in other cities in Texas other than San Antonio now. So, Okay, well, listeners, thanks so much for joining us today. Dr. Hall, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate that you took your time out of your day to talk to us and give us this important information. Listeners, join us next week for the Truth Seekers radio show. God bless. When your kids are hit with a snack attack, Save the day with nutrition-packed snacks to boost their energy and improve concentration. This is registered dietitian Amy jamison Hitonic. Fruits and vegetables make great and nutritious options. Try peeling a banana, dipping it in yogurt, then rolling in crushed whole grain cereal and freezing. Your kids will love a whole grain pita stuffed with ricotta cheese, apple slices, and a dash of cinnamon. This is registered dietitian Amy jamison Hitonic. Visit eatright.org for more healthy tips. Hi, I'm Mark Spitz. Yeah.
Reading and controlling a person's mind is perhaps the one power we don't want anyone else to have. Imagine a world where you can read your boss's thoughts or glean the intentions of your worst enemy. That's Impossible has assembled a to-do list. One, crack the code on how the brain processes information. Two, develop the technology to tap into, even steal, thoughts. The means to remote control another person's actions. Right now, in secret and public, scientists are working on the important first step to reading the mind. But how? The brain's complexity dwarves that of any existing computer. There are approximately 100 billion nerve cells or neurons in the human brain, almost as numerous as the stars in the Milky Way. Each of these cells has a negative electrical charge inside the cell and a positive charge along the outside of the cell membrane. In essence, creating a tiny electric battery. Think of it as the brain's software, the world's most sophisticated search engine. Inside our heads, the nerve cells are all engaged in kind of a, a telephone-like conversation. One speaking to the next, speaking to the next. And as the information is going through, the, each neuron is listening to all of its neighbors, giving rise to more and more complicated signal processing inside our brains. But the first critical step to cracking the code of how the brain processes information is being able to listen in on these millions of telephone-like conversations all taking place at once. Believe it or not, as information passes through the brain, the electrical impulses between neurons can be heard. This is the actual sound of a brain neuron firing. So in a way, we can literally hear thoughts. But how do we translate those sounds so we know what the person is thinking? I'm Cheryl Welsh. I'm a human rights activist and a mind control victim. Starting in the 1960s, people began claiming they were victims of mind control. As recently as 2007, prestigious publications like the Washington Post investigated claims by a growing number of victims that the government is trying to control their minds. Cheryl is one of them. Cheryl believes she became a targeted individual, a TI, in the 1980s when she walked into an army recruiting office to see if she qualified for college tuition money. She decided not to enlist. And that's when she claims the strange mind control phenomena began. Basically, uh, the hearing of the voices, the manipulation of all your electrical equipment, the clicks on the phone, the reading your thoughts, the reading uh, your mind, seeing what you're seeing. Could Cheryl's claims and those of other TIs be true? And if so, how would the government be controlling their minds? Many of them, including Cheryl, point to electromagnetic and microwave mind control weaponry. Everybody agrees your mind is an electrochemical uh, system. It works on electric signals, magnetic signals, and signals from the outside, they mimic, disrupt, or interfere with signals in the body. John Alexander is a retired U.S. Army colonel and Pentagon advisor on non-lethal weapons. His 1980 article, The New Mental Battlefield, 
published in the Army Journal Military Review, is cited by Cheryl and other TI victims as proof that the government is carrying out mind control experiments. However, he denies any government wrongdoing. I'm very familiar with the conspiracy theorists on mind control and what they state. The biggest question I'd ask is, why them? During the 35 years since these experiments ended, science has made giant leaps away from these primitive attempts at mind control and are making science fiction science fact. Even the government has been secretly developing new mind control technology. According to this article in the Washington Post magazine, in 1994, the Air Force Research Laboratory carried out experiments where scientists used technology to transmit phrases into the heads of human subjects. How? By burying subliminal messages in microwaves and beaming them into a person's head. It seems like a weapon torn from the pages of a comic book. The Air Force denies it's working on one. But patent number 6470214, issued on October 22nd, 2002, says otherwise. The patent title, Method and Device for Implementing the Radio Frequency Hearing Effect. Patent holder, the U.S. Air Force. Documents surrounding the development of this secret weapon are classified. But what is known is that microwaves carry energy. When a microwave pulse is absorbed by our body, this energy is converted to heat, causing the tissue to expand slightly and then contract when it cools. If the microwave were aimed at our head, this expansion and contraction would be heard as a clicking sound that could be encoded into words. With that sort of technology, you could give someone an instruction or you could perhaps make them think they were going mad. Uh, and it quite clearly talks about the military applications of this technology. Is patent number 6470214 a top secret mind control weapon? According to this passage in the patent documents, this device can beam energy waves that can be, quote, converted to nerve signals which are sent to the brain, thereby enabling intelligible speech to be perceived by the brain. The result, the person hears voices that aren't there, much like the voices reportedly heard by targeted individuals. The military potential of mind control is obvious. Enemies could be intimidated or be made passive without a shot being fired. The argument is that this would always be preferable to war. I think the future is a place where mind control will exist. I can only hope that it will be in the hands of the right people and that it will be regulated so tightly that it can't be abused.
time is 
Hello. 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 Hello.
Welcome back to Coast to Coast, George Norrie with you. A couple hours that could scare the living daylights out of you. But Reverend Sean P. Whittington is with us, an ordained exorcist, deliverance minister, ghostbuster, lecturer, teacher of paranormal studies at a Bible college and a theological seminary. Sean and his wife, Sharon, who is also an ordained Lutheran minister and intuitive, are both survivors of extreme demonic attacks. We'll find out what happened. And together they have more than 40 years of field experience. They have founded and operate what is called Ghost Be Dash There, Ghost Be Gone, which is a spiritual warfare service based in Las Vegas, Nevada, assisting with paranormal issues of various types and severity. Reverend, welcome to the program. First time for you, I understand. <laughs> Mr. Nori, I know I can retire now because it's never going to get better for me than this. I understand you did some Navy stints, too. Yeah, I did. <laughs> me, too. Nine years for me. Very good. I did one for you tour when I was uh, actually celebrated my 21st birthday out at sea. 
And uh, my father was a 25-year retired master chief from the Navy. Oh, that's great. Uh, served both in uh, World War II, Korea, uh, Naval Intelligence, all of that good stuff. So a uh, Navy family for sure. That's great. Yeah, my dad was in the Army, World War II. Uh, I never saw any action while I was there for my nine years. But uh, I had fun. Met a lot of great guys. Will we ever have another generation like the greatest generation? I, I don't know. No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. It's sad. And I miss my father. He's in heaven right now, but oh my gosh. So it is what it is. Uh, an interview with an exorcist at midnight on Coast to Coast. Uh, you and I have written a better script. Oh, it's perfect. And we're getting closer to Halloween, so it's yeah. perfect. How did you get involved in this? Um, picking and screaming. Literally. Yeah. Well, you know, before we start, I, I wouldn't be doing... You know this interview tonight is a direct uh, result of divine intervention. Probably. That's right. I pray to be on your show. I'm here. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't at least offer an opening prayer of protection uh, if you're up for that. Um, we are going to have talk about some dark subjects. There are going to be things listening that will not want you and I to discuss these topics. If you want me to start the show with protection prayer over you and your studio, then I will. If you're not comfortable with that, that's okay, too. How long is it, just so I can time it? It's just, it's very quick, 30 seconds, maybe. Do it. Go for it. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, in thy name, I ask thee to bind and silence all powers and forces that do not accept thee as Lord and King. In the air, in the water, in the ground, the netherworld and nature and the spiritual world. I ask thee to bind all demonic action and demonic communication. Lord, seal this whole place, all of us here, and all our intentions of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Mary, we ask thee to surround us with thy mantle of protection and crush Satan's power in our lives. St. Michael the Archangel, we ask you and all your guardian angels to defend us in battle against Satan and the powers of darkness. Amen. What is that supposed to do for us? That is a prayer of authority. We're letting these things know that it doesn't matter what they try to do to silence us tonight. Um, and they'll try. Some way, yes, some way the message, we will make sure it will get out one way or another. And, um, and to not um, follow you home or any of your staff home or, or hang around here after the show in my home which is active enough as it is. I live in a haunted home. So it's just, just to take authority over all of that. And uh, in terms of attachment of these demons, why does it seem like they're able to do it? You would think that we could fight them off so easily. And you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, people have lost their faith uh -huh. in life, and they don't know how to fight these things. So they're easy targets, and once... Uh, these demons get their talons sunk into their victims. Um, it's very hard to get uh, them to release their victims, especially if the victim has no religious belief system in place and doesn't know how to fight them back, doesn't know how to reach out for people like me, and doesn't know when to allow someone like me to help them and, and do the types of things I require from them to help me help them. Next time I get to Vegas, we need to get together. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. My wife and I, we are work, and when we're not working, we're working cases, and when we're not working cases, we're here doing a number of other things. We don't get out and have much fun. We are 
uh, not downtown in Vegas, gambling all the time, doing that nonsense. So uh, my feelings would be truly hurt if you swing through town and we don't at least uh, meet up for a, a cup of coffee. All right. I'll definitely. I don't drink coffee, but uh, I'll have a soda or something like that. Okay. It depends on what time it is. Maybe if it's later, I'll have a glass of water. Perfect. And my wife, my wife will join you. She, she likes to nurse a, uh, every once in a while, if the occasion is a big occasion, uh, nurse a Kahlua and milk. Tell us, what happened to you and Sharon? And you were both survivors of what they say are extreme demonic attacks. Tell us what happened. Well, when I first met my wife, she was already an ordained uh, certified Stephen minister through her Lutheran church. Sensitive, intuitive, uh, near-death experience survivor a couple of times over. Uh, passion for the paranormal. I already was a ghostbuster for many years since about the age of 10. And uh, that was a passion for me, too. So we started ghostbegone.biz. We just started basically ghostbusting, ghost hunting, ghostbusting, you name it. And I made a very big mistake uh, at a case, which I didn't recognize at the time was a demonic case. And I used a Ouija board. Oh, no. I didn't know what I was doing. Probably the biggest mistake in my career. And uh, I truly believe that um, my ignorance there, my extreme ignorance there, opened the door and allowed something at this case, which was very ugly, was a newlywed. And they, she was, the, the wife was being basically raped by an unseen force while laying in bed next to her husband at night. Whenever he tried to intervene, he would come under attack. And then the attack just progressed in severity. She was in the shower, entertaining at a party in her home, sitting there just watching TV or sitting on her back porch having a smoke. It um, got really bad. So at this case, we used a Ouija board. And that very night, um, about 3 in the morning, it's always 3 in the morning, and we're driving home. And I was like, oh, times. <laughs> yeah, it is back east right now. We're supposed to be back east in the witching hour for you. Right. Her phone rings, and there's, we have caller ID, and I, there's no number on her phone. I thought it might be the client, so I told her, Sharon, go ahead and answer it. So she did. There's no one there. We came home and it started that night with severe night terrors, and we could envision a black cloud hovering over our bed, like, a, like a, a, an actual storm cloud in our master bedroom, hovering over our bed, swooping down on us, swooping back up to the ceiling, swooping down and back. And we ended up having a water main in the floor in that room burst that night. So it flooded us out of the bedroom, and we went to sleep on a California queen that we had to purchase in the living room. We're still, you know, eight years later, we're still sleeping in that living room because we don't want the memories of that, of things that happened in the master bedroom were so awful that we don't want to go back in there. Why don't you just get out of the house? <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you, there's, there's, there's a, a good ending to this story. This is our home, and one of the last things you want to do is allow these things, they're gangsters, they're bullies, is to let them move you out of your home. You, you need to fight back. Unless it's a matter of life and death, which a lot of times it is, you need to fight back. You need to get on your hands and knees and pray for Jesus Christ to come down and intervene in your life at that moment and help you. You need to fight back. 
that, that's what you really need to do. Sometimes does that work and, and, you know, not work, I should say, and a person has to leave? Absolutely. It happens all the time, but you should fight back. Well, but you've been out of your bedroom for how many years now? You know what? We got comfortable out there. The dogs sleep with us. The uh, guest bathroom's right there. The entertainment unit's right there. The kitchen's right there. It's much quieter. Uh, the master bedroom's up near a street. Um, so it's quieter there, and we just made that one of uh, my wife's offices. She actually is uh, an office manager at a you mean the other room? So that's her office. We turned it into an office. So you're using it for something. Absolutely. Okay. But we didn't want to go back and sleep in there again. And so it just escalated from there. I couldn't go outside of my house. Uh, they manipulate the environment. I would have birds attacking me, bees attacking me, orange cats attacking me. I'd have children, noise of children playing in our garage. I'd go out there. There'd be no children out there. And then... Um, it got uglier and uglier, and I reached out into the paranormal community for help because I had no clue what it was I was dealing with. And I got introduced to my then mentor, who took me under her wing and walked me through how to fight this thing. And we were, we were in a battle for our lives, literally, for about eight weeks. And that's intense. Well, as soon as I got this thing out of the house, my wife comes home from work, and she's talking to me like she's having a stroke. And I asked her if there was something wrong. And she goes, well, I, my, my mouth hurts. I said, well, go to the dentist. You probably lost the ceiling or cracked a tooth or something. Well, the dentist immediately saw there was something else going on. She ended up coming down to three very rare forms of cancer. Of, of the mouth. Oh, my God. Yeah, she had a squamous cell carcinoma of the tongue. She had medullary thyroid cancer, which is the worst of the two. It spreads. There's no cure. Throat cancer and the medullary also spread to all these lymph nodes in her neck. And that's why dentists are checking people like this all the time now. Yeah. It, the, attack was, the attack was insidious, and she was given a death sentence. She was told she wasn't going to make it through this. You know, she had a feeding tube in for well over a year, couldn't drink water at one point, couldn't talk for many months. Many nights I laid next to her in bed positive I was going to wake up in the morning and she'd be dead. That's how bad she was. She went from like 130 pounds to like 90 pounds. It was, it was bad. So I took a page out of my mother's book, which she taught me many, many years ago while she was still alive. You know, you need to tell, crawl on your hands and knees in church and throw yourself on the altar and you beg for him to, you know, to intervene in your life and, you know, help you which is what I did. I would sneak out at night to an all-night prayer chapel, and I would crawl on my hands and knees front door to the altar and beg for my wife's life. So just when I thought all, all was lost, a friend of mine back east, he's an atheist, he um, was actually moments away from dying. He was at advanced colon cancer, and he called me from his deathbed, and he told me that he had just seen God, and God told him to tell me Sharon was going to live and that I needed to continue to fight those responsible. And so I was teetering on if I wanted to continue or if I wanted to get out of the world. But that hit me like a bolt of lightning, and I realized, um, um, and this, these are things that we could also discuss in the show, but I realized from many, many things that happened to me from being a young child and things my parents told me that I was meant 
I was created for this. I was meant to be on this path. You were born. Yes. And and so I, you know, I got but there were some very doubtful moments when I I really thought that uh, I wasn't going to be up up for the task. And how was your wife? Well, 35 straight treatments of radiation in her mouth, eight weeks of chemo, which almost killed her, uh, several surgeries. Uh, I'm happy to report the last full-body MRI and CT just recently performed, so no metastasis anywhere of the disease in her body. So God came through for me, and um, now I owe him. And I have to, um, I have to continue uh, fighting this battle. Well, I have a feeling that uh, you have been uh, supporting him for a long time, and maybe that's one of the reasons why he's taken care of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, these these people who come to you for help, what do they ask? How do they even bring this up? These topics. Well, usually. They sound like crazy people by the time they get to me, God bless them, because they're, they're at pretty much at rock bottom. They're scared to reach out to anybody for help, for fear that somebody's going to think they're, they're, they're crazy. They're nuts, right? Absolutely. And usually one of my first questions is, uh, do you have a, uh, a religious belief system in place? Do you attend a church? And the ones that do have a um, whether it's Christian or Catholic or one of the other uh, religions, and they belong to a church or frequent a church, I'll ask them, did you go there for help first? And 99.9% of them say, yes, I did, and nobody there will help me. So that's depressed. Why why is that? I don't know, but that's very depressed. Sure. So I... um, Especially when people reach out for that kind of assistance and help. Absolutely. But there's a good, there's, usually that turned out to be a good case. We may be battling some quite some time, depending on how the severity of the situation. But at least now when I, when I have people call me that, no, I don't believe in God, but there's something going on here that's weird. I need it, I need it out of my house. Um, uh, that's probably another one of my... Um, many failures that I continue to um, try to get rid of. I see all the time is there's something that I'm missing there that I'm not able to connect with these people and get them to allow me to help them the way I need to. Do you have to, heartbreak. Do you have to believe in God in order for you to be able to get this demon out of their place? Well, at the very least, they need to believe in some higher power than light that watches over us and protects us that is more powerful than this dark, low, vibrational, nasty thing that, you know, is trying to turn their life upside down and possibly, you know, break the family up for sure, but perhaps kill someone or more than one person in the family. And so, yes, that it, that's at least a prerequisite that they have some belief in some type of higher power of love and light that is watching over us that we can reach to for help when we're at our, you know, the most dire straits. A place that may have some demonic spirits or the individual is, you know, attached. What percent of them do you conduct exorcisms? Not, um, 
Well, I wake up every morning and I pray, of course, that I never have to perform another exorcism again. It's dangerous. Yeah, it's very dangerous, and you can't get a lot of people to assist you. And when you finally have a very close-knit, small group of people that you can trust to come and assist you on an exorcism, there's so much involved, giving me the, um, the family to sign off on it, um, crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's, and making sure everybody's on board. And uh, it, it is very dangerous. You lose a lot more of them than you win. And it's just, it's, um, it is a very scary situation. I'm always human. You know, I, have, I still have fears. Mm-hmm. I have a healthy fear and healthy respect, if people can understand what I mean by that, of these things. They're all-knowing. They're older than time. They're very powerful. And just to simply say that they hate us uh, isn't, I'm not adequately expressing in words what they truly feel for us. It's, if you could imagine the worst serial killer ever to walk the earth and how he felt times that by infinity, and that's just one demon. Well, they may have found the worst serial killer, somebody who may have admitted to 90 deaths, but we're going to come back in a moment, Reverend. We'll talk more about exorcisms. We'll take calls next hour. Get daily show updates right here in box for free with the code code.
Okay, welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you, along with the Reverend John Wheaton, as we talk about his work at God Coast of Paranormal Ministry. Have you ever been hurt doing an exorcist for Sean? I would have to say no. Emotionally, absolutely. Um, scars that will probably be with me, um, you know, the rest of my life. A lot of people don't understand that probably the most vicious attack by the demonic is the psychological attack. And people in my line of work were under that attack all the time. And once again, we're only human. I have no magic powers. A lot of people would reach out to me. I get the impression sometimes they expect me to just walk into their home and wave a magic wand and make it all better. And that's just not the case. I don't have any magic powers. I've been blessed to know that somehow this has all been arranged on the other side, that I can be used as a vessel to allow the Holy Spirit and other angelic beings and guardian angels and warrior angels and things of that nature to come down through me during you know, a battle with the demonic at a, at a location. And so I'm blessed that way, but I'm actually not doing anything. But they will, like I said, they're gangsters. And they always want to go after who you love. So my gift of discernment is that I can see them and hear them. And they're always in my ear telling me what they're going to do to Shannon. Um, I show up someplace, a lot of deliverance ministers, demonologists especially, and, and there's some exorcists, not Catholic priests, but other exorcists, will perform what they call religious provocation. I don't believe in that. I know for a fact that me just showing up is provocation enough. So why book the bear? Just get in there and do what you have to do and, you know, pray that someone is listening upstairs and send them help down for you and you can take care of this issue without too much collateral damage. But they're always in my ear, you know, talking about what they're going to do to the client if I don't leave, what they're going to do to my wife don't leave. If I show up without my wife, they ask about her. Oh, we'll go we'll go check on her. Why didn't you bring Sharon? Oh, we'll go check on her. It, it's terrible. I, I, I worked a case once. My parents had just died. Both of them. A year apart. Sorry. And I was working in a place where my parents appeared to me in the middle of the night sitting at, in front of a fireplace. And they proceeded to talk to me about what a worth a worthless piece basically piece of you know what I was. Now they were great at having me and how I'm wasting my time here and I'm just going to cause a lot of harm and heartache to this family, yada yada yada. So it obviously wasn't them. No, but at the time, after being there for a lot of hours, being in the pitch black and sitting in a uh, uh, demonic interested home and having them at you all night long. That was very scarring emotionally, and, and it hurt. And you can't help but, but that stuff to affect you to a certain degree. So things like that, people get into uh, this field. Uh, people ask me all the time, you know, I want to I want to take up a hobby, and I decided I want to be a ghost hunter. Do you have any, you know, uh, advice? And I usually say, uh, don't do it. Because if I hear the word hobby, something hasn't happened to you to make you all of a sudden, it feels like it's fun. Absolutely. 
and I advise them that it's not a hobby. Usually something has happened to a person, and it leaves them with more questions than answers, and now they're hooked. They got the paranormal bug. They want to find out what it was that happened to them, so they search out other like-minded people such as themselves, other people that had had paranormal experiences, and then they start trying to, you know, further their knowledge. And then comes the paranormal investigating and the ghost busting and, oh, and hopefully helping people. Many go into this field without even thinking that they're going to help people. Um, and I think that's sad, too. I think everybody that enters this field should first enter knowing that they're going to do their very best to help people first. Because that's number one. Yeah, absolutely. What is easier, to cleanse somebody who's been possessed or to cleanse a house that's been awesome? Oh, absolutely. The property in the house is, is very easy. And uh, unless, well, now we're going to get <laughs> I'm going to get into a completely different direction here. Unless you've got, you know, your fair share of elementals attached to that property or, you know, that home has been built on, you know, Indian burial ground or uh, an area of a great tragedy at one time, that's a whole different ball of wax. But uh, once a person is possessed, it's, that's difficult. And the scary thing is, is that now we fear that uh, there's another level to that, that just... Uh, an unclean spirit invading that uh, human vessel and fighting uh, the soul, the initial soul that inhabits that vessel and trying to get it out of there, take over that vessel. And if we try to intervene in there, somewhere in that, we try to intervene and exercise the unclean spirit out. We fear now that if a possession goes on long enough and, and no one really knows what's happening with this person and they haven't reached out for help, and now it goes into another stage called complete integration. And now this, the original soul that inhabited that vessel is completely gone, and the whole vessel is taken over by this invading spirit. And now you've got a walking, talking, normal-looking person walking around that's actually this demon that's inhabiting this vessel. And now you have all of And this is what I suspect behind things like mass shootings. I believe these people are possessed either completely beyond possession or they're under such demonic oppression that they're just being manipulated like they're a puppet, the demons above them, the strings. True, true, yes, absolutely. Now, I remember William Blatty when he wrote the original the book and then he wrote the screenplay for the movie. Uh, it was a life case, a real case of a little boy in Baltimore, Maryland. And they ended up in St. Louis, where in the, in the Alexis Brothers Hospital, and there were two priests there. And I remember one of the priests who stayed in St. Louis, he died a few years ago, did not like talking to the media. But this changed his life. He was never the same, ever. Absolutely. Do you remember how that ended, out of curiosity? The movie? Um, the, with the little boy. Remember the priest, all, and even the little boy talked about how St. Michael showed up. Yeah, he was saved in the end. Yeah. That was a pretty incredible story, Harold. Oh, well, some like interesting. Yeah, St. Michael, and even the child saw St. Michael. He actually, and that's very rare. In the hospital, which has since been closed down, they sold off the furniture that happened to be in that room, the bed, 
dresser and stuff like that. It was a hospital. And people who bought the furniture reported strange hauntings in their house where they put the furniture. Now, that is weird. Pretty astonishing. Who would want that furniture? I, I wouldn't. <laughs> At any price. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get people sometimes. They just don't. People, yeah, I don't mean to laugh, but it just, it just, oh, my gosh, it's just so, you know, it's just so mind-boggling. Are you in it, when you're doing an exorcism, are you there with a cross and holy water? Do you, do you go that route? I always have on me for, for well, I was baptized Catholic, so I'm, and I'm still a devout Catholic, but I was ordained through a Christian university. I still have a lot of respect and belief in the power of the Roman rites. So I usually, and it's like, it's like a play, if you will, for lack of a better description. I love to have a couple of prayer warriors in the room that will do nothing but sit at two different areas of the room. If I only have one prayer warrior, that's fine. But this person is to, no matter what they see or hear or what happens, they're just to sit there and pray. And they can just pray prayers out of a prayer book, or they can pray, read aloud from the Bible, but never stop doing that. I usually need a brave soul that's going to film and document what happens, and no matter what happens, keep rolling. I need a couple of people to one or both sides of me in case I get hurt and someone needs to take authority over the exorcism. Now, if it's a woman we're working with who's afflicted, I like to have a couple of women with me because it seems during some of these, you know, first it always starts with a lot of what we call parlor tricks where, you know, at one point you may have every window, every door, every closet door, every drawer in the home opening and slamming all at the same time. You see it in the movies, in real life, it's horrifying. And it's, this noise can be deafening. And you can't even hear the person next to you what they're saying to you. You've got to try to stay calm during this time. Usually those severe bouts of um, parlor tricks are followed by a manifestation through the body. And after the person goes through that, whatever, whatever that ends up being, they usually defecate, urinate, and throw up all over themselves and everybody else around. So you don't want men taking a woman into the bathroom. No, the women taking the woman into the bathroom. And vice versa, you have a man there cleaning them up and everything else. Yeah, absolutely. You want a couple of men to keep the man in there if, that, if that's the case. Plus, you know, men can sometimes, um, and women too, but if a man, if a large man gets, gets violent, it's better to have a couple of other men with you. Have you ever had to call the police? No, but I, I, I've driven up to many locations where... I've had the priest that called me in to help and the police that showed up because there was a lot of weird stuff going on and the neighbors called and they're outside in the driveway waiting for me to show up. They don't want to go back in. Are most exorcisms done in their house, the individual's house or wherever they're living? Well, you can, yes, most of the time, but you can take them away from there. I, I like to take them away from there and get them on hallowed ground, preferably a church. I like that. Would a church allow an exorcism inside? Well, if you, if, if you know the right people in one and you have some friends in high places and you can pull those strings, but it's like tonight I'm going home from work 
early, and I wanted to stop by one of my favorite churches here in town and go in and thank God for my opportunity to talk to you tonight. And the church is closed down. When did they start doing that? I thought churches were open 24-7. Depends on the area, I guess. I guess, but that's, that's another thing that's changed and, and uh, sad about the world and the world we live in nowadays. I think we have so many homeless people, Sean, that, uh, you know, some people will fall asleep in the church. Sadly. Yeah. I, I, I but I was I was depressed that I wasn't able to get in there, so I actually got out of my car and got on my knees and sort of prayed on the front lawn. Huh. And then I told you, you're doing a great job. <laughs> We're going to take calls from you next hour. And maybe you can give people some advice, too, because you might get, you might get some calls from people who I know people who are possessed. Um, have you ever gotten a call from somebody who was possessed themselves and they knew it? Well, uh, it, I've had demons manifest themselves to me right in the middle of conversations because I have some I have some trick questions and some trick comments that I can say that most demons have to respond to. And I wouldn't want to say them, you know, out loud over the airway here, but I will say them sometimes during a conversation and get the demon to manifest right there. Um, but yeah, I've I've actually had one case where the woman would get text messages from an unknown teacher in Latin. Weird. In Latin. We took that phone to every phone place you can imagine to try and trace this call. We couldn't find an, uh, a place where it originated from. So uh, it's just, uh, um, you know, that's why I have, I have a lot of healthy fear of these things because we, I don't think we know just how powerful and knowledgeable that they can be. Where do people get the book, God, Ghost, and the Paranormal Ministry? Uh, three ways, and one of the ways comes with a warning. You can go to Amazon, you can go to Kindle, you can go to the ghostbegone.biz website, purchase it from me direct. I have some author's copies here. I'll autograph it for you, ship it to you direct. Now, here's the thing with that book, and I, I have to mention it. A disclaimer. Uh, a disclaimer. There's a picture of an entity in the book that I captured at a remote location out in the middle of the desert. And since some of my readers have reached out to me that purchased the book from me, from my home, who said after the book arrived in their home, they saw that apparition in their home. Oh, so I'm a little bit amazed at the possible attachment some of these books that have left my home, I find that off the charts amazing. And the investigation continues on that. But if you want to purchase an autograph copy from me direct, be forewarned, it may come with a ghost. Um, but I don't need it for anything to be fearful of. Um, she hasn't seen her here in the house many times. She hasn't done anything. Um, hasn't hurt the animals. Hasn't uh, done anything... Uh, uh, outward leader to show us that there's anything to fear of it. But she usually appears after of all, I'm probably sitting in the most haunted place in my home at that, my office desk. My wife sees me here all the time working away. I'm so busy she doesn't want to disturb me. She decides to walk away only to find the real me in another area of the home. Kitchen, the bathroom, outside. She'll say, you're just, how did you get out here? You were just in the office. I'm like, that's not me. And as soon as we realized she just saw my, for lack of a better term, doppelganger, 
and I don't know what that is, but I'm just throwing that out there because I don't know what else term to use. That apparition in that picture that's in the book, I would get off this deck down our hallway, across our living room, and out our back door. So it's interesting. Um, this thing looks very solid. I'm not sure if it's a young girl or a young boy. It has its own shadow, solid three-dimensional figure, like it's a real person. And uh, I just, um, like I said, the investigation goes on, but I, I thought I should throw that out there if someone purchases the book from me. Fair enough. We're going to come back and take calls with you next, Sean. Sean, what do you do with us? I think I have the name of the book. God, Ghosts in the Paranormal Ministry. We will be back in a moment on Coast to Coast Day.
And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Dory with you, along with Reverend Sean Woodington, God, Ghosts, and the Paranormal Ministries, the name of his book. Though we've been talking a lot about the things that you do for the book, Sean, tell us a little bit about the book. I can you believe I wrote a book? If yes, I think you're very good at what you do. <laughs> I, I can't, sometimes I can't believe it. It just, I'll tell you what, it was very uh, painful. I had to dig deep and pull a lot of scabs off a lot of old wounds and revisit a lot of things psychologically that I didn't expect I'd have to in writing it. I could have easily made the book look like War and Peace, but I didn't want to do that and turn people off. So it's like the abridged version mm-hmm. of... Um, my paranormal uh, memoirs and autobiography and uh, all that good stuff. Uh, I tried to put the most interesting uh, cases in there and experiences of mine that uh, have stuck with me. A little bit of my parents' background because I wouldn't be here without them, and they and their their history and ancestry ties right into my spirituality and and um, and what I do. And uh, so some of that's in there. That's very interesting, and I'm just. Uh, pleased to finally get it done because it, it was a lot of hard work. And anybody that tells you that it's not hard work is um, is, is kidding. I, I'm not Stephen King. It's probably never, it would never be on the New York Times bestseller list, but I'm happy with it. Nobody's knocked on my door and thrown it back in my face or, or I wanted their money back. Everybody seems to enjoy it. I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into that because, I, you know, I, I want to be proud of it. I want those that read it to, uh, to have an experience. And, and I know there's some messages in there for people out there in the world. I don't know what those messages are and who those people are, but I do know that to be the case. So if, if some of those people get some of those messages, then... Um, I'm, a, I'm a happy and blessed man. Good for you. Um, tell us a little bit about the organization, Ghost Be Gone. My wife and I started it right after we met, fell in love, and got married. We um, said, well, we got to have a name to the team. And so she said, uh, how did Ghost Be Gone sound? I said, sounds great. So it's been Ghost Be Gone for the last 17-plus years. And we had, there were times where we had a, a larger team other than her and I. But I'll tell you, that's hard, especially after our ordeal where she came under attack and then I started absolutely, you know, a lot of people in my field never, they're ready for it and they're trained for it, but they may never work a true demonic case. After my wife's attack, while I was going through training, the next nine cases in a row were all demonic. They were all the same type of attack and everybody that was under attack all my clients either knew each other professionally or personally. And it was probably, my theory was it was a pack of them. I have colleagues that disagree with me, but my theory was that it was a pack of demons leading me down this rabbit hole, which led to my attack about seven cases in. And that attack on me was so uh, frightening that I actually left the field for about a year. And I had no intentions on uh, coming back. True story. But Pastor, this is what I talked me into working a case with her, and I did it. And uh, as you can, yeah. <laughs> how did you know when you had that first experience with the Ouija? How do you know it was the Ouija board that did this? Well, I don't. But it was the only different thing that I did, and I know that. I 
didn't know what I was doing. And I knew after the fact that it was probably something I shouldn't have used in that case. I should have been able to recognize, and I'd never worked a demonic case prior to that, so I didn't know. I should have, you know, recognized there was something different about that case and reached out for help before I went any further. But I just dove, jumped in feet first into the deep end, not bad a swim. And I was just, I just made bad decisions and uh, paid for it dearly. Now, it's come full circle. That's another one of my failures. These nine cases have come full circle back to the original client who disappeared on me after, I, after Sharon's attack. It moved on to another client. I couldn't go back to the original client. She disappeared. Now she's resurfaced, and she's dying of cancer. So it's just um, it's just a um, – I want people to know that it's absolutely not really to do this. I don't care on what level you're on. If you're a parapsychologist or just a paranormal investigator or – ghost hunter or ghostbuster or demonologist or deliverance minister. This stuff is uh better be better know what you're doing. You better do your research and do your homework and, and reach out to your colleagues and keep the lines of communication open in the in the paranormal community with like minded people as yourself. And when you think you need to reach out for help, don't be too proud. Our greatest enemy our greatest weapon is humility and strength in numbers. And so many people in this field, all branches of the paranormal community, don't seem to practice that very much anything. What happened to that? George, what's your opinion on why the paranormal community seems to be non-existent anymore? Everybody could care less what the other person's doing. I don't think it's non-existent, Sean, but it's kind of gone in different fragments. It's scattered all over the don't you feel that way? Um, I just feel just no com- there's, a, there's close-knit groups here and there. There's, there are a few camaraderie. But for the most part, it seems to be, in the past few years, become very dog-eat-dog. And, um, and that's a shame. It used to not be that way, you know. Um, and I could be wrong. If, if somebody wants to call and tell me that, you know, I'm wrong. I'm not seeing it. With the proper, I'm not looking through my eyes at it the correct way. God bless you. I, I'll listen to you, and, and, and I'm willing to admit that I could be wrong. But how I see it, it seems like there's just not a lot of real close-knitness and camaraderie um, like there used to be. All right. So the phones we go. Laura's in Cincinnati to get us started. Hi, Laura. Hi. Good to have you with us. I have a question on my phone. And I've called before about Tim being on drugs. Right. Heroin, um, mainly. And, um, if, I mean, is that, can that be evil, you know, influence? I mean, you get a program and nothing. Nothing is negative. Just nothing's working. No. What do you think? Can you be possessed with drugs, Sean, or what? Absolutely. Well, that's, it's, uh, one of the demons is addiction. I don't like to use their name. I will usually address a demon by the, the affliction he's, uh, you know, slapping onto his, his victim. And addiction is one of those. Absolutely, that's, um, that's an attachment and uh, extreme oppression. 
and we all know what the end of that story is, Laura. I'm, I'm, you know, God help us. I'm going I'm to keep your name on this little piece of paper here. I'm going to say, what, do you mind giving me your son's name? What's his name, Laura? Randy. Randy. I will pray for Randy when the show's over tonight, I promise you. But you need to, uh, just because one program didn't work, go to another, to another, to another. And I don't know what your religious belief system is, but he needs to get around a healthy environment away from the environment that's fueling that addiction. And he needs spiritual help. And he also needs medical help, too. Uh, any help that's available to you out there, get it and uh, stick with it. Because at the end of this story, I think we all know, without me saying it, what the end of this story is. And that's very, very, very sad. So it's time for you to, to realize you need to fight for your son's life. Next up, let's go to Cornelius in Louisiana. Hi, Cornelius. Good to have you. Hey, George. Reverend Wellington, well, Reverend Wellington, I'm the God guns the gold man, the Bible bullets and beans man, telling everybody to get ready. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you've seen this show and you're doing some of the same stuff. It's called Evil. It comes on CBS tonight from 9 to 10. And it, it's really dealing with demonic possession and stuff. And it, it's a great show. So I hope all the Coast Coast listeners and callers will watch it. But my... Uh, question for you. I, we live down here in Louisiana. I'm in Alexandria, Louisiana now, but especially in South Louisiana, you got voodoo, hoodoo, and yoodoo and stuff like that. So have you ever come to Louisiana to do any exorcisms or anything like that? And George, don't ever uh, mess with that Ouija board that night. Oh, no. No, no, but it opens up too many portals and demons and stuff like that. And I, I see that Reverend Winning can mess with it. Yeah, that's a dangerous thing, that, that uh, Ouija board. But God bless you, Reverend Whittington, and uh, please pray for me too, Cornelius, just like in the Bible, Roman centurion. I promise I will pray for you, brother. What do you think of his cases? He's talking to me or Cornelius? You. He's talking. Um, Louisiana is a very interesting place. I'd have to say I won't argue with anybody if they lived there and said, we are in the most haunted area of the country. I'm not going to argue that. My gosh, is that one of the most interesting places in the world? And if my wife didn't, on top of everything else, suffer from extreme asthma, would I love to relocate there? Because I think I would have an overabundance of cases to work. Absolutely. I, um, that, that's a great area of the country. But, um, yeah, all of that... Voodoo, Hoodoo, Santeria, uh, things of that nature down in the neck of the woods. All of that, if you pull the many layers away and get down to the bottom, and I know I'm going to get hate mail for this, but if you pull all the layers away and get down to the nitty-gritty, they usually are occult-based. And really? so that's not a good thing. No, not at all. And cults are very difficult to break, aren't they? Yes. Next up, let's go to Raven in Alabama, first-time caller. Hi, Raven. Hi, George. Um, I have a couple of questions real quick for the Raven. One is, um, if you think that a person is diagnosed with TID, which is multiple personalities, multiple personalities. Personalities. 
You know, I think of that uh, famous story, Sybil. Oh, yeah. Um, you absolutely, do I believe that there's a lot of people who have been committed to insane asylums who are probably possessed? Yes, I do believe that to be the case. Do I believe multiple personality to always be demonic? No, I don't. I think absolutely you need to be, at the very least, under a doctor's care. And if that doctor is a good man, has a good soul, a big heart, and he is full of humility, if he thinks there's something more going on there than textbook multiple personality, perhaps he will bring, you know, somebody of spiritual knowledge, like a priest, in on the case and help and, and, and help out, help work through that. But no, I don't believe all multiple personalities are um, demonic, but some yes. Let's go back to Raven for her second question. Go ahead, Raven. Um, I would, my mother practiced witchcraft, um, and of course, um, I'm a Christian. I, you know, I believe in Jesus. But um, I, I still think, like, I know there's other dimensions. Um, I can just feel it. I can feel, you know, the evil candy at me. And, you know, I, I don't know. I just feel, I know there's evil, you know, and um, I'm nervous. Is your mother still alive, Raven? No, she does not. And she has seen the visit me. How long had to, before she passed? Do you mind me asking how long she was practicing up to the occult practices? Um, up until she passed away. She passed away. She OD'd. Um, she was an addict all her life. She didn't make it past 50. Well, there's a battle going on for your soul. You know that. You are Catholic, and your mother was a witch. You need to distance yourself from and, and, you know, cut yourself from that blood tie. She'll always be your mother. You'll always have her blood in your, in your veins. But you need to distance yourself from that completely and just start trying to be a better version of yourself every day than you were the day before. Start praying more. Start going to confession on Saturdays church on Sundays, receive the Holy Communion, and start hanging out with more like-minded people such as yourself, get into some support groups, some, you know, the church should be able to supply you with some really healthy support groups that are fun, not like in the olden days, but like catechism, but fun, you know, and, and just, you need to break away from that, and, and you can be in for a little bit of a struggle and feel these things around you for a while, but stay, stay strong. Why does it seem that it is so difficult for people to break away on their own? Why do they need help? Well, we understand. The thing is, is there's, there's, when they're under this extreme uh, oppression, and even if it's infestation, a lot of people think, well, that's just, you know, the demonic is in the home. That's not a big deal. No, that is a big deal. They were already targeted, and it's just the first stage of many to come. But that person is the one that's hearing the scratching on the walls, the tapping on the walls, the getting scratched and bitten, and that's even before oppression. It, it's hard. It's like I talked to a cop once about why it's so difficult when they go on these domestic violence cases. Of all the cases they work or calls they go on, the domestic violence cases are the worst. And they, they hate those. They hate those. Absolutely. I liken 
infestation, oppression, possession, and complete integration as a form of spiritual, um, the spiritual and demonic version of that domestic violence um, playing out, that whole role playing out of that, because people are very much like that. They all of a sudden, almost in these weird, bizarre ways, become dependent on, sometimes on this, this entity that's attached to them. And that's scary. Well, it sure is, to be sure. How many different exorcist uh, cases have you had uh, since your career started? I know a dozen of them easily for sure. A dozen for sure. Whether there, have there been some other that I'm on the fence about if I was truly in the presence of, of the demonic? Yes, but at least a dozen for sure that I know of because after those, uh, after the, the seven that I worked and had my attack and then left the field for a year, then got talked back into it, the next two cases, one case, I had a vision of the Holy Spirit, and the following case after that, I had a vision of Christ during an exorcism that I was performing. So it was, um, I have to say, at least a dozen. But um, well, I'm going to actually make that unlucky 13. I, I go into detail about one I did on a young lady in a wheelchair um, at the end of my book. And that was an exorcism that ended in a way like, uh, I've talked to so many people in my field. No one can remember ever working a demonic case or a possession case that ended this way. And it's turned that whole theory about how to how an exorcism text textbook, how an exorcism should go and end, it has turned that upside down a little bit. And uh, when you read the book and get to the end, you'll see what I mean by that. And... Um, just God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. He created them. And I think no matter what push comes to show, uh, he's the only one. And if he, he chooses to end it any way he can, uh, it, it's up to him, and he can do so. And all you need to do is find a way to tap into that. All right. We're going to come back and take final calls in a moment right here on Coast to Coast. Thank you. 